This is Nick Hudson. I'm Dr. Daniel Nagase. This is Julie Panessi. This is Corporal Daniel Beauford. This is Dr. Paul Alexander. This is Dr. Eric Payne. This is Dr. Stephen Pellick. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Wednesday, hump day. Hope everybody's week is cruising along. Um, we got uh, we got a great one on tap here for you today. Before we get there, let's get, of course, to our sponsors of today's episode, Canadians for Truth. They are a nonprofit organization consisting of Canadians who believe in honesty, integrity, and principled leadership in government, as well as the Canadian Bill of Rights, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the Rule of Just Laws. Some of their core values, the sovereignty of Canada, truth in journalism. Ooh, I like that one. Uh, truth in medical ethics, the truth in government, protecting our children and their future, uh, and the 1947 Nuremberg Code for everything and more. Uh, go to CanadiansForTruth.net, okay? Um, Prophet River, they got their soft grand opening uh, this Saturday. I had to chuckle. I'm like, what's a soft grand opening? Well, it sounds like they got some solid deals happening on a bunch of different guns. They got a door prize. They got a bunch of reps from all the different companies coming in. Sounds like they're the experts if you want some questions answered, if you want to pick some brains. If you just want to see inside the new store, sounds like it'll be a place to be this Saturday, April, oh, what is that, April 9th? Does that sound right? April 9th. Uh, so if you're looking to uh, see inside the new store and uh, maybe get a deal, uh, get some questions answered, uh, they got the soft grand opening happening Profit River here in town. Of course, if you want all the, the information on what Profit River is about, go to ProfitRiver.com. They are the major retailer of firearms, optics, accessories, and serve all of Canada. The Deer and Steer Butchery, the old Norman and Kathy James family-built butcher shop on the north side of Highway 16 and Range Road 25. Uh, you know, for a long time, it was used by local hunters in the area for custom cutting and wrapping. While it's now open, they've given it a facelift and hired Barry the Butcher, who comes with 20-plus years of meat cutting experience in the Lloydminster supermarket. And uh, sounds like here in uh, uh, in April, me and Brian have been talking um we're going to get this guy in there uh, to see exactly what they all do, how they do it, uh, some of the cool different things they got going on, and uh, I'll tell you all about it. So, Barry, look out. I'm coming for you, and uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun. If you want to get a hold of the Deer and Steer, give them a call, 780-870-8700. Gartner Management is a Lloyd Mister-based company specializing in all types of rental properties uh, to help meet your needs. Whether you're looking for a small office or a 6,000-square-foot commercial space, give Wade Gartner a call today, 780-808-5025. Who knows? You could listen to me yap uh, through the walls like uh, so many around me probably are cringing right now as I rattle through this. Um, if you're heading into any of these businesses, make sure you let them know you heard about them from the podcast, right? Now on to that Ram Truck Rundown brought to you by the auto-clearing Jeep and Ram, the Prairie's trusted source for Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, Ram, Fiat, and all things automotive for over 110 years. He's been an officer with the RCMP for 15 years. Since 2013, he'd been in Ottawa where he spent eight years on the emergency response team where his primary duty was supporting the protection of the Prime Minister. I'm talking about Corporal Daniel Bulford. So buckle up. Here we go. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Of course, I'm joined today by Mr. Daniel Bulford. So, uh, sir, thanks for, uh, well, good to see you again. Good to see you. My you pleasure. Know, Thank you for having me again. 
uh, to the to the listener, they wouldn't know because I, as everybody knows, on this end, I went silent there for uh, about fifty three days. Um, but I did get to meet you and and your wife, and that was a pretty cool moment. I thought uh, to actually get to meet uh, you and uh, and share a conversation. I thought it was pretty cool. I wish we would have done something maybe a little more elaborate on the podcast so people could have heard. But for me personally, I thought that was a a cool moment in Ottawa uh, that I'll look back on fondly. Oh, me too. I, uh, I, I was, I had almost zero free time. <laughs> and so I was really, I thought maybe I had missed you. I thought maybe you had left town. So when I ran into you that night, I was very happy that we had the opportunity to actually see each other in person and meet in person. Well, here's what I, I think everyone's curious about, right? You, everybody had their story from Ottawa and Ottawa was hard to explain. But you're a guy who was boots on the ground, was there the entire time. That's mm-hmm. where you've worked, yada, yada, yada. Like the, you had an interesting perspective. And then at the end of it, like I removed myself from social media. I just, I, I needed a break. And then when I do come back on, I see you giving yourself over to police and my heart broke into, I'm like, oh man, like, uh, I don't know. I, I, we can get into the paranoia and all those different things, but you in my opinion, are one of the good ones, at least from what I've saw. And maybe we're both, maybe we're both insiders. Who, who knows, Daniel? But uh, it's interesting how the paranoia gets cranked up on everything. But I thought we'd start with your view as a convoy came in Ottawa and then just, you know, talk about some of the things you saw and everything else. We can, we can get into lots of the different uh, areas here uh, that have been unfolding since then. But um, maybe uh, give the viewer, the listener, uh, your perspective on the convoy uh, being in Ottawa. Okay, well, initially, when the convoy was spooling up, you've seen it moving across the country. Um, you know, I, I don't have much of a social media footprint, but my wife was giving me updates, and I was I was monitoring the convoy moving across, and you've seen it building great momentum and huge support. And we were so excited for when it was going to roll into town. And my initial job, or role was supposed to be like hadn't um, wasn't involved with the actual convoy itself. I was actually supposed to be pro- helping provide security for some of the higher profile doctors and scientists who've spoken out and they've been threatened as a result of that. So, I mean, Hey, I have a background in protection. That was my expertise over the last eight years. And so that was going to be my role. But then on the Tuesday night before the convoy rolled into town, I think it was uh, January 24th, roughly, or the 25th, I got a phone call from a friend, kind of almost a panic phone call saying like, we are helping the volunteers organization, like adopt a trucker for basically uh, receiving and help like hosting the convoy as they land in Ottawa. And we really need your help with security. And I was like, uh, okay, you know, last minute, right? The convoy is on the final march into Ottawa in a couple of days time. But at the same token, you know, I, I knew that I could find other people to help full in, fill the role I was supposed to do. And I knew like these people, these truckers and the supporters of the convoy that are rolling into Ottawa, I owe them everything because they are the only people who stood up on mass to oppose the tyranny that was 
the, the ever-increasing authoritarian behavior from our government, not just, not just federal, our provincial governments as well. And so I felt like, okay, I, I cannot say no to this. I have to help. And so the, the next Wednesday morning, I went to a meeting and it was a small group of volunteers around a kitchen table. And you've seen like, we were just getting started on like preparations. Um, thankfully, we had some very switched on people that were able to manage the number of uh, volunteer, I guess you could call them applicants and had had organized some people into who was willing to do what, like who was willing to offer a place to stay, who was willing to offer to provide transportation, who was going to be willing to help prepare food, who was going to be willing to help with security. And I, I mean, I've have I've had a lot of experience in um, tactical planning for these big big events that happen in downtown Ottawa, right? Like you know, Canada Day, Remembrance Day, and like a significant amount of time and resources go into planning those events. And like I'm just used to planning this small portion of that said event, right? And here we are, and and that, like a, a big Canada Day could almost be a year in planning like for as a whole as an event as a whole and it's done by like groups of paid professionals and here was this little handful of volunteers that were trying to prepare for something of that magnitude in two or three days and <laughs> i thought to myself i'm like wow we i mean good on the people who vol who agree who kind of put the idea forward for the adopt a trucker but like they had no idea how big this of a task this was to take on and so but we all knew well we don't have a choice so we're just gonna do what we can we started making phone calls and trying to get things organized figure out okay who's gonna be who's gonna who's running first aid who's running security who's running shuttles who's running food who's running lodging like it was, it was a hasty preparation. I mean, <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, we, we worked our way through it. And thankfully, because the people that were coming were so, they're so used to taking their own initiative to getting, like getting shit done, that things just happened. Like, we didn't have to micromanage hardly anything because people would just like realize that there was a need for something to happen and they would just do it. So anyways, I ended up fulfilling the role essentially of like volunteer security coordinator and, and, and police liaison. That was a, that was probably what I spent the majority of my time doing was talking to the different police agency uh, liaison teams and, and trying to um, keep people calm about what they were seeing from the police in Ottawa at the time, right? Because a lot of people had never been to a, had, some people had never been to Ottawa. A lot of people had never been to Ottawa. And a lot of people had never seen what would normally happen when you have one of those massive events in downtown Ottawa. Because it is the capital and because it is the parliamentary precinct, you know, there, there is 
it's not uncommon to see a lot of the things that we saw from the police in the first couple of weeks, right? Like snipers on the roof of Parliament Hill. That used to be my job. I used to be up there all the time for stuff way smaller in scale than the convoy. And, you know, the, the different, different police services, like walking around in different types of gear, like that's pretty standard when you have a major event, right? Um, placing barricades around roads, whether it's concrete or heavy equipment. That's been a norm since uh, vehicle rammings had become popular over in Europe and other parts of the world, right? As a way to create mass casualties. So, uh, fortunately, the volunteer people were basically self-managed themselves on the security front. And then I, my, the majority of my time was all spent dealing with um, like, exp like explaining to people what they were seeing and some of the reasons why, because a lot of people like just automatically went to that mindset of like, yeah, it was going to be a massive, uh, the first you know, government conspiracy to crack down on us. And, you know, and the I first, mean, there was, um, the first, like, ahead. well, the first like three, four days, it seemed like every couple hours there was a new, um, a new panic, a new panic. It reminded me yeah. of, uh, um, the game you used to play at school where you'd tell the rumor and go through all the people. And by the end, it was like, what, what? Yeah. And that's to me what I saw over and over and over again. And all it was, was putting out these fires all over the place, but it sent everybody into a panic. Yeah. And when tensions were that high right at the start, like mm -hmm. this has to work. That's what everybody thought. This has mm -hmm. to work. Cause if this doesn't work, what are we going to do? Yeah. And then so, it's lost. Yeah. yeah it, it was a very uh, hopeful, but very tense couple of days there right at the start. And then I thought, I don't know. I thought from the cops, um, about day four, Dan, I'm like, I thought everything just kind of relaxed for a, a mm. period of time, but maybe that was just from my standpoint. Well, I think there was a real heightened anxiety from the people who came and, and I, I was, I, fortunately for me, I had been involved in a lot of those big events. So I was, I think I was able to help people like stay calm for, for a period of time because, you know, I, being the security guy, I would get, I would feel tons of like uh, phone calls and people wanting to report like, you know, th there's snipers on the rooftop of parliament Hill. And I'm like, yep. And they're like, well, that's not normal. Like, are they a threat to us? I'm like, no. They're not a threat to you at all. They are there to watch the crowd. They're looking for people who could be a threat, but they're not looking to target anyone on the ground specifically. They're there to watch, observe, and make sure that no one becomes an active threat to the crowd as a whole. Like that, and to make sure no one actually tries to like become a threat towards the parliament. Like that was my old job, right? Um, but there was a real, you're right though, the fir those first, like I'd say the first week at least, maybe even longer, there was a really high sense of anxiety about like people afraid that the, that the police were just going to mass mobilize and smash the convoy, which, you know, did eventually happen, but it took some time to get there. Um, I do think like the, the, the police 
in Ottawa, like the, in the major services there on a regular basis, they facilitate big uh, events all the time, right? Like I, I can't remember a protest ever being that scale. Um, you know, there, there have been a couple like um, a BLM protest uh, back in 2020 was quite large, but not as big as the convoy. And, but, you know, they, they deal with protests all the time in Ottawa, like all the time and, and big, big events where there's huge gatherings of, of the public that's a regular occurrence there. So I think that a lot of the anxiety that was there in the initial days was a result of people never being exposed to anything like that. Like seeing like, you know, different police from different parts of the province. And then as it got closer to the third week, right. Even police from different parts of the country. And I, I, I was, trying to just reassure people that like, that's normal. It's not unexpected. We, we see this all the time in Ottawa and it's, you know, a lot of it is just as simple as sustainability, right? Like they need to bring people in on a massive scale in order to be able to cycle people out. So what, what point then did it become, um, a surprise or like that isn't normal. Well, the, the third week is the obvious, the obvious turning point when they invoke the emergencies act. I mean, I, it wasn't a real surprise to me that the Trudeau government made that move because it kind of followed the progression, right? The city of Ottawa declared a state of emergency then the province of Ontario declared a state of emergency. And then eventually the federal government did on Valentine's day. But what I was hoping was that because the protest was peaceful, that they would not, they wouldn't have the justification to move on the protest because there was no imminent threat to, well, to the nation, right? There was no imminent threat to anybody as a result of the convoy, even though, you know, even though the, the government and the mainstream media narrative was that it was violent and aggressive and, uh, you know, damaging property, which was completely false. It that was, was the, total BS. Well, that was the and, hardest thing I had. Listen, being there and seeing everything and then flicking on the news, which you shouldn't have done while you were there, but mm -hmm. it was hard not to just Hmm, I wonder what they're saying about this. I wonder what they're saying about this. Yeah. And I don't know. Like I walked a lot of those streets. Doesn't mean mm -hmm. I was everywhere. Definitely was not. Um, you're another man who would have known a lot on the inside and everything I saw and everything I'm hearing from you there, like it wasn't a riot. It wasn't like, it was no. some of the most, well, I keep saying it was, uh, I didn't realize that level of humanity existed. Uh, the amount of people that were, you know, like just, everything like from the the smiles to the handshakes to the cleaning to the shoveling the yep. sidewalks to the amount of free food you man you could go there and have a uh, a class a grade one meal like everyone got top-notch food and it didn't cost mm -hmm. you a thing like, mm -hmm. it was just it was unbelievable yeah no it was it was 
unity on a scale that I've never seen before. Unity. Like, that's a you, great word. Yeah. You, you, you go to a big Canada Day event. And I mean, I've, I was usually elevated watching the crowd. You could watch, you know, you'd be on the lookout for people that were kind of stood out as potentially like suspicious, you know, with their behavior and who could be a potential threat. All the same things that you would look for with any large crowd. And with Canada Day, yeah, it was like a party type atmosphere, but it was always like little groups just doing their own little thing, right? Within the larger group. Whereas this, I mean, I didn't have the bird's eye view that I normally do, but anytime I went down there, like just total strangers, just like laughing and hugging and everyone just so happy to like, feel like, oh my God, there's a sense of hope for Canada, right? Because I think a lot of people were in that mindset before the convoy rolled into town that like, or before the convoy started rolling across the country that what's left to stand up for, right? Like if, if the majority of the population wants Canada to be the way Canada is and the way Canada is heading, is there a place for me here anymore? Do, do I have a future here or is it time for me to go? And I had that conversation with my wife many times and I was at that point where I was like, I should have got my family out while I could before the flight restrictions shut everything down. Right. And so like when you go down downtown Ottawa, when the convoy was here and experience that, that firsthand, like, man, thousands and thousands of people like just packed in the street, like happy to see each other, you know, happy to see each other's face. Like, and it, it didn't matter. No one cared. No one cared what race you were, what religion you were, what your background was, how you even voted. No one cared. All anyone cared about was that we were all there to stand together for our fundamental freedoms, period. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was a, it was a, it was almost a euphoric atmosphere. Like there was times where you would like the first few days, especially when I would my, take my little mini breaks to get out of the coordination center and go like walk downtown and check out the convoy and you see the people in the trucks and everyone like that, that level of unity and that level of joy and hope you would just like, it would, yeah, I'd get overwhelmed. Like I, there was so many times where I just like, I just break down waterworks. Like, thank you truck drivers for saving our nation. Right. When nobody else did not the doctors, not the lawyers, not the cops, not the courts, not the politicians, the truckers. The truckers gave millions of Canadians hope that we're not going to let our country be taken away from us just because some talking heads in government yeah. say they can, that they're going to take away all of our freedom. It galvanized the population, right? Because everybody was looking. Uh, I don't know how many times in the conversations I had leading up to the trucker convoy, um, Everybody was, there was so much energy. It just didn't know where to go. Like it was just kind of splattering against the wall, you know, like, oh, mm -hmm. it's going to stick. Nothing's sticking, nothing's sticking. And then you heard the trucker convoy Yeah. and everybody knew, yep, that's going to work. Yep. And when you talk about talking to strangers, that's all I did there mm -hmm. it was just approach random people. And I, I say this a lot, you know, in Alberta, and you would certainly know this, like Quebec is kind of like a, almost like a swear word out here, you know, like, uh. They're always yeah, taking their money there, and there's a little bit of an animosity. There is and, an animosity there, 100%. And I would say 
some of the nicest people I met there were from Quebec and I couldn't mm -hmm. understand them and they knew I was from Alberta and we just kind of like, everybody was there for the right reasons and they mm -hmm. understood that. And that was like, to me, super cool. Like, I think, I don't, I don't know how to put it to in words, almost like you have Canada day and Canada is fun. There's nothing like, uh, believe me. And I've had this conversation with, uh, uh, Jamie Sinclair before he's a, a 30 year, um, military vet mm -hmm. about Canada day being on the wrong date. It should be on a different date. That means more to our military or, uh, something that means more to Canadians. We got it on like kind of a warm day so we can all get out there and wave our Canadian flag and whatever. And that week, two weeks, uh, of being with the convoy, I was like, Oh, this is Canadian. Nobody gives mm -hmm. a crap that it's minus 30 outside. It's they're freezing all, cold. Yeah, yeah, everybody's outside. They're bundled up. They're like, and just such unity. I, I haven't been using that word. I've been using level of humanity. Like I just, everybody was so open to talking to everyone. Everyone was smiling. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever seen so much smiling in my life. Everyone was crying. Yeah, like, that's you, it. You were, there was just so much emotion. But I always say too, like I'm not a protester. Like I don't go on the weekends to go protest. And actually, mm -hmm. when Brian Peckford was on and he mentioned that if we just protest something like five Saturdays in a row, this would all be over. They had to be meaningful protests, but five in a row. And I got to have him back on to explain that better because now, now I think about it all the time. But I wasn't, I, I, as soon as he did that, I went to Edmonton for protest because I'm like, okay, if Brian Peckford's going to say that, I better either put up mm -hmm. or shut up, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't really know what a protest is supposed to be. I'll say this. The one I went to in Edmonton was like, you no, know, like was uncomfortable. You talk about little groups. It was, it was kind of like that, right? We're all there for the same reason, but it was kind of like, you're there. There's three people and their family and then a couple of friends. And I'm the awkward guy sitting there as himself. And I'm kind of walking and should have invited a couple of people, but I just kind of went and spur a moment, whatever you get to Ottawa. I walked around by myself a lot. I never felt alone. It was the most safest place ever. Mm-hmm. I think I gained weight. I don't know how that's possible, but everywhere I went, <laughs> there was some new vendor with his family going, you ate yet? And I'm like, I've ate like three times, but geez, I feel bad. Not, not taking a, you know, a taste of what you got. So then you eat some more. And I mean, and that just kept spurring out. I, I tell people all the time, I got to feed homeless. I don't know about you, Danny. I don't know if you got to do anything like that, but I got to feed the homeless and stuff. And I never realized how much fulfillment maybe that gives a person. Like mm -hmm. to just like, respect one another. And there's a guy down and out sitting on the street corner. It's minus 30. How would we go give him a bowl of chili? And mm -hmm. you know, the 60 year old kid you're with is like, sure. I think it's a great idea. All right. So we go give him a, actually, I think it was pizza when gave him some pizza and he was just like over the moon. Like mm -hmm. that's what was going on. That's what I saw with my eyes. And I know there was a heck of a lot more than that going on. Mm -hmm. But once again, I, I come back to the media thing. I come all the way circling back around it because that's the one that uh, I, I, I said it on Vance Crow's show. I'll say it again here. And I apologize because I don't know how to say it better, but it's a real mind fuck. Like yeah. I can just imagine being in your shoes and the way the media has portrayed you and everything else, how hard this has been. I, I'm not surprised by the media's approach to this. Um, being what my, you know, my former profession exposed me very early on to how biased the media reports, right? They will, you know, they, they tell the story that they want 
to tell in order to get the most attention and the most viewership. It's not about telling the truth anymore. It's a like, have you ever seen that interview with Denzel where he goes off on the media about yeah. being first? Yeah. That I, I think he's a hundred percent accurate with that, right? Like you, you have your independent media sources, which are doing a much better job, but everyone has a bit of an angle, right? And I don't think it's any surprise that media that is funded by our government is going to report favorably on behalf of our government. Now, I've been, I, I've been, I haven't, I stopped paying attention to the mainstream media a long time ago because of my experience with my old profession. But unfortunately, I've had to start paying attention to them again, to a degree, just to see like how deceitful they are being. And, and now, I mean, after experiencing what I did in Ottawa, especially throughout the duration, like not, not just Ottawa, like throughout the duration of the pandemic and what I see that's either being suppressed or not reported and what they are saying, and then looking at their own information on public health websites, and that's not congruent with what they're saying in the media. And then you go experience the convoy, and it's probably the single greatest event I've ever been a part of in my entire life. Right. I mean, aside from my wedding and my children being born, I, I don't think you... any. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'll put that little caveat in yes. there. Uh, like, getting married, like... my wife, my kids, convoy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the convoy was the single greatest thing I've been a part of in my professional life. And I, I don't care what the media says about me. I know that everyone that was involved that I came into contact with, whether they were truckers, supporters, or people volunteering, had nothing but the best intentions of being peaceful, trying to do it the right way, let our voice be heard and, and, and show the world that like, we will not submit to authoritarian governance. I think- And, but then the media, they, they twist it to fit the narrative that they want. And I just, uh, I think that if I had one solid piece of advice for anyone who's still living in fear of the convoy or the supporters or COVID turn off the CBC and the CTV and global news and all of those big outlets, like go look for yourself. Go find information for yourself. And then beyond that, I would also say that we have to start questioning everything that we're being told. Maybe that sounds a little bit paranoid. I don't want to be that paranoid, but you should be able to trust your government and your media. But it's clear from what I've experienced firsthand that you cannot. Well, I was going to, I think maybe I was the naive one, right? Because uh, on the road to Ottawa and seeing everything I was seeing, it did confuse me to why the CBC wasn't on the side of the road talking mm-hmm. about it. And now everybody that I said that to was like, well, of course they're pushing their narrative, whatever. And I'm like, I guess I just had more faith. I, I, I personally thought... Um, the longer it went on, they'd have to change the tone. Like they just, mm-hmm. they, they would. And so I think 
probably one of the hardest things that I had to wrap my brain around. I'm still trying. I'm still trying to do it. Is different than a police force. The the media outlets have to have good people there, right? That are good people. I I know people who've worked there, right? Like I mm-hmm. just so here's good people. And I'm going, okay. So at what point do they start talking about what's actually going on in the convoy? Because I'm sitting in the middle of it. And I thought the entire way across Canada that eventually they'd be like, wow, look at this. Like even the first day I talked to a, um, I've mentioned this before, a a 20-year vet of the Ottawa police force, me and my sister talked to him. And you could tell he was like, oh yeah, just another 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 protest and i was like well i'm i'm not so sure about that and the longer we talked to him then he mentioned you know i'll say this though i've never seen protesters clean up their own garbage before like there's mm-hmm. people out cleaning everything up and i'm like yeah it's pretty cool because everybody knows they're on thin ice right like they can't step out of line because they'll that's what they'll expose so mm-hmm. everybody was like trying their best uh to go out of their way to make mm-hmm. sure only good things can be told. And I yep. eventually thought the narrative would break and CBC would walk in and they'd start like interviewing all the good stories. All you had to do was walk down the street and you just ran into them headlong. Like, I mean, they were just everywhere. Like every person you ran into had this story that was like, wow, that would have been good television. So when it comes to ratings, I go like, it that's really bothers me because it's like, what we're talking about is people will only tune into bad things. And I know Don Henley and dirty laundry, the song, and I get it, but like Canada COVID, like that was a hell of a story. Mm-hmm. And instead, yeah. Was there, was there people there not for all the best reasons? Maybe, but I feel like the stories of those got really exposed and really talked about. And that's what they focused on. The longer it went on, the harder you went the hell is going on and so in my i come back to it it's a real mind fuck and i i really had to think about that one for a really long time that our government is willing to go to extreme lengths to keep up a narrative that doesn't even make sense anymore and then on top of that there's thousands of people upon thousands employed by the cbc they aren't all freaking robots they got to be sitting there going the hell are we doing no am i wrong on that dan no, I think you're bang on, correct? But I think that pro- my, my guess is that within the news media, you're going to have people that see the truth, but they're intimidated into staying silent. Because much of a job. Like, much like in the police, right? I field messages all the time from active serving police officers, not just RCMP, other police officers, like, thank you, Danny. You have given words to my thoughts. Thank you for speaking up. And and that might sound kind of uh, braggish or uh, like yeah. a, bra- a braggy thing to say, but like, then why aren't you speaking up? Right? Like, I know I know that we all have that threat of what could happen if you were to speak publicly. But I would say you don't have to go public like I did. I did because I volunteered out of a small group of people. We knew that someone had to. And I felt like I was researched enough that I was willing to do it. And I was also at that stage where 
I couldn't just sit in my basement silent waiting for this problem to go away. But all it would take on the enforcement side and within the news media side, any profession where you have a bunch of people who see what's really happening but remaining silent because of fear of losing their job is just tell your boss in private, like, I'm not doing this anymore. And if enough people took that stand together, if enough people were in solidarity like that, even internally, you don't have to make a big public display about it. Then the boss has to reevaluate, can I get rid of all of these people? Right? Like for example, my old team, roughly 30 guys. That's, you know, that's, that's not a big unit by any means. But if the entire team had said, you know what, if you push Danny Bulford out because of his decision, we all leave, that would be enough for the RCMP to say, whoa, um, we better reevaluate our, our stance here, right? It might not become, it might not have worked in the ultimate outcome that we wanted, but it at least would have put them back on their heels a little bit and realize like, oh, you mean we can't just bully people around and force them to do what we want, right? And I think like what people don't understand is how much influence we actually have on public policy. Well, it's we just, just, we just we saw just it with the remain, truckers. Exactly, right? Like people, you know, okay, the federal government wouldn't negotiate, the federal government wouldn't engage, the federal government wouldn't drop the mandates. But look at what happened across the entire country, right? And it doesn't matter. I don't care what any of those premiers or chief medical officers say about it had nothing to do with the truckers. I call had, BS on that. It, had a, it 100% no. had to do with the amount of support that Canadians were putting behind the truck convoy. That's why mandates got pulled. That's why everybody, vaccine everybody, passports every, got Everybody pulled. knows the yeah. reason, like you're lying to yourself. If you, you think are. the reason, the reason that uh, everything's gone isn't because of those, you know, that month right? Like mm -hmm. those, those days, every day that it lasted and people talked about it more and more videos came out, it gave more ground for every premier to stand on to say, we're, we're done with this. Yeah. And we well, saw it, it first here in Alberta and Saskatchewan. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it's totally to do with that. The, the, you know, I'd always, what maybe one of the interesting things about going through the last year and talking so much about this, this topic was like, how do we get out of this, right? And everyone, and you know, you get your Brian Peckford who'd say, well, we got to, you know, the people got to protest. United Noncompliance. That's yeah. right. And you're like, mm -hmm. you really think that could work, right? Yep. Like I just couldn't, I, in my brain, I'm like, they have these freedom days, you know, where there's 20 people kind of waving a flag and you're kind of like, how is that ever going to work? And then you see it work and you're like, oh, well, that's, that's how it does it. It has to be scale, right? Like, like you said, I've, I've been to a lot of protests when I was working that the turnout was abysmal. And I even thought to myself for years, like, what are these people really hoping to accomplish here? Like, you know, I get, I, now I have a whole new appreciation for people standing up for a cause that they believe in. But at the time I was sitting there watching like these, these small groups, you know, coming up onto parliament Hill. And I was just thinking like, oh man, like this never seems to change anything. Yeah. But if you get it on a big enough scale, it can make some serious changes, right? Like, and that's what happened in Ottawa. So you, you had the provinces on mass either halt things that they were bringing into place 
pullback restrictions, you know, uh, vaccine passports, uh, mask mandates, you know, if they didn't do it while the convoy was in town, it was like they, they were setting dates. And I think that the only reason that they didn't do it like immediately was because they were, had to try and save face to a degree, right. right? Like, Oh, if we drop all this right now, it's going to be clear that we are under the, you know, we have been pressured by the, but that extra, convoy, that, as extra, opposed to, that extra, yeah, that week extra really... two weeks makes a difference. <laughs> yeah. COVID knows that it has to just disappear in two weeks time. Right. It's like, it's like the restaurant when you walk in, people walk in with a mask. It's like COVID only exists between four to seven feet. That's why you can take the mask off as soon as you sit at the table. I mean, it, it makes no sense, but anyways, I, sorry, I digress. Um, but if you get it on a massive enough scale, like Ottawa did, that is the wake up call. That's what the politicians will respond to. It's like, Oh my God, there is not, this is not just the small fringe minority. There's millions of people supporting this as it moves across the country. And there's thousands upon thousands physically here amongst the trucks in support of them. Right. And I think that, I mean, well, I'm convinced that's why the provinces went the way that it did. And that's also why our opposition finally started being an opposition and why our opposition leader was replaced. Right. It was clear that it was because you didn't take a strong enough stance on our behalf, right? And that's why you're no longer going to be remaining as the leader of the official opposition. I'm convinced of that. Well, and the thing was, is like, um, have I ever taught, well, I mean, we've only talked a little bit, but did I tell you anything about uh, the convoy, like following it through Northern Ontario? No. Like, it's one thing to have a protest in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. It is... Like you, you said it mass non-compliance. Like when we watched it go into Sudbury, it pulled into Sudbury um, late and only part of it because they split the convoy because of road closures. Mm-hmm. And it had to have been that night, like minus, I don't know, my phone died as I was trying to record it. That's that's how cold it was outside. Like, I mean, I don't know, minus, it was minus 30-ish. Like mm-hmm. it, it was cold. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like a rock concert as the trucks rolled in and they did the slow roll, like revving the engines, people were going nuts. And it wasn't mm-hmm. like one of the cool things, you know, I had this conversation with a guy uh, a couple days ago and he was saying, ah, yeah, but it was just all one type of person. I laughed. I'm like, are you kidding no. me? Like it was Wrong. all ages. It was kids all the way up to grandparents. Mm-hmm. It was every code, creed, religion, everything, color, you name it. We're out there. And that was Sault Ste. Marie. And the next night is when in North Bay, the convoys converged. So the, mm-hmm. the one from the North met. And I swear to this day that the road was rumbling as they were converging. And there was people like there were just people everywhere. And it's like minus 30 outside. Mm-hmm. And they've been waiting hours because the one thing about people don't understand about the convoy is it, it, it didn't move that fast. Like uh, the one day it was a seven hour drive. It took us 17 hours. And people just lining the highway. And just when you think, oh, there's nobody out here. Okay, we can get going. You pull around a corner and there'd be another 100 people. And then 100 Mm -hmm. people over there. If you're a politician, you couldn't hide from that. Mm -hmm. Like you just, you couldn't hide. You could put your head in the sand if you wanted to. But you look out and there was people everywhere where that convoy went. It was unreal. It It was a rock party that didn't end for how many days? And then it hit Ottawa and it just kept going. Yeah, well, I think... uh... I remember 
probably like the within the first weekend of the convoy being in Ottawa, like scrambling, running around, talking to the different police agencies, an Ottawa police officer saying to me, like, we had no idea that this was going to be this big. And I just looked at him I'm like, well, that's because you've been listening to the CBC. 100%. Like if you had been paying, it, it doesn't take a, like a high speed Intel officer to keep an eye on social media and see that people are talking like, you know, numbers anywhere between 10,000 up to possibly 50,000 trucks, right? Like I have no idea what the over, what the actual final number was of vehicles does and trucks anybody that were involved have- in the convoy. No, I don't think anybody does, but it was massive. Right. And so when that, when that behemoth landed in Ottawa, they were completely caught off guard and they, and they've admitted that they've admitted that to me in person. They've admitted that uh, like in the media, um, you know, and they can talk about, well, it's a major failure of the police and intelligence services. It's like, you don't have to be a police officer or an intelligence officer to look online and see the fact that, holy crap, this thing's really picking up some serious steam and some serious support from all, like people are coming from the Northwest Territories, Prince George, Vancouver, um, Toronto, and Niagara, uh, the East Coast of Canada. Like you had truckers come from Newfoundland. Right? I had, a, I had, had a, across the ferry. I interviewed a guy in a, like a, oh, what is, what is one of those trucks called? Like one of those little um, Toyota but it, it's got like a, this tiny little back seat, mm-hmm. and it was him and his three kids, three kids from Vancouver Island, and he just said, "I gotta go. Kids can come, mm-hmm. or you can stay home with your mom." And the kids are like, "No, we're coming." So we're there coming. they are. They're, they're loaded up in this little <laughs> yeah. truck, following the convoy. I'm like, "This is unreal." All right, like, when would this ever happen? Any other time in history? Like, I can't think of anything other than honestly, like maybe wartime when you're like, okay, mm-hmm. you've heard the call and you, you got to make yep. the trip and and the boys go or the women go. Like, I mean, everybody puts in their part at that point, but like this was, and once again, all ages, all races, everything. Like I met a set of grandparents from out Northern BC. They'd made the trip like everywhere. It, it was wild fireworks going off. Like, yeah, I just, and yet the CBC caught none of it. Like none of it. I'm just like, this is, this is hard to handle, you know? Mm. Well, I'm again, uh, but you have an interesting uh, background, Dan, and that you like, that's why I say I was naive because I was really naive. Like I, I just assume it would change, but I watched that fifth estate where they, they uh, talked to all of them. And I was like, like, yeah, I, I mean, you pick part the Sean Newman podcast. Are you going to find me swearing? Yep. Are you going to find me saying some things about Trudeau? Yep. Are you going to find like, you can probably list off a bunch of things. And if you clip it out, we all know how this is on any Mm -hmm. type of media source. You can make anyone sound like a jackass, especially when me and you, uh, when I talk for like your 250, 250th episode at like an hour a pop, at least Mm -hmm. you're going to find some dirt there. Like, I mean, that's pretty easy. And I mean, like the fifth estate thing is like, huh? Like if you, if you'd really, you could have done one of those, but do another one where you actually get them in. And like show the light of the two sides and the, the side that would win is the side that was there that showed everything that was going on. Yeah. Well, another thing that I've said in defense of the convoy, when people have been critical of me being involved with it is, you know, they're regurgitating what they've heard in the media. And I just, I get so tired of trying to argue against the lies of the mainstream media. I just say, did you go there yourself? 
And the answer I've received is, well, no, I couldn't. It's like, lie. That's not true. You could have absolutely come down there at any point in time. You could drive down. People were still able to drive around the city because lanes were left open. It might have taken longer. Yes. But you could, you could have come down at any point in time, seen for yourself what it was really like, and you would have been welcomed by everyone. No matter what your view of the convoy was, we like up on the stage truck, they were actually providing people the opportunity to speak against what the convoy was in Ottawa for. I, I mean, that didn't happen much, right? Because I think there was only one or two people that had the guts to actually come do it. And, you know, good on them for having the yeah. courage to come confront like thousands of people about like, you know, expressing their displeasure, but they were accommodated, right? They were given the opportunity to speak, to speak and present their case, which is what none of us have been allowed to do, right? Anyone who's questioned the narrative has been like, publicly shamed and attacked and name called in, in efforts, which has been very successful in keeping people silent and afraid of what the social perception of them will be if they question things publicly. But um, so if you didn't come down there for yourself to see what it was really like, you missed out because it was a historic moment. And I'm so glad I got to be a part of it. I'm so grateful that I got to be involved and in, I think in a significant way, right? Um, and now uh, coming back to the fifth estate you're talking about, that's the one where um, I think it was, uh, is it Finley? Is that the, uh, the journalist's last name? Jeez, now you're Anyways, putting me on the spot. Uh, I don't but know. She, she interviews James Bowder. Yeah. Pat King and Jeremy or, and tries to make an attempt to interview Jeremy McKenzie, right? Oh, and that's, and that was... that's the only people that they focus on, right? And and they, they paint them to be like these big lead convoy organizers, you know, and then they try and, you know, they really go after Pat King for some of the things he said publicly. And, you know, they really try and make him appear as though he's a white supremacist and inciting violence or advocating for violence against Justin Trudeau. And then they go off on Jeremy McKenzie and try and connect him to one of the guys who's arrested and charged in Coots, Alberta. And I'm watch I, I, I watched it and it was painful. I mean, it's, you can tell, like she talked, about interviewing Pat King for an hour, but then what you only see maybe five minutes of the interview. Right. And it's like, it, and it's very set to the very dramatic music and it's smoke and mirrors. It's all that. That's what they do. They, they craft the message and they edit to fit, to make the narrative fit the message they want to tell. And I can tell you from a hundred, like with a hundred percent confidence that, I mean, I don't, I'm not privy to everything that was happening during the convoy, but like, I, it was a busy time. We were go, 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 go on the volunteer front. And I did get to meet and interact with a lot of the truck captains, right? People that were kind of like, uh, well, identified as kind of the de facto leadership of the trucking convoy. And I didn't talk to James Bowder once. I never even met him in person. I didn't even know what he looked like until I watched the fifth estate. Never spoke to him once. Pat King, I seen in person two times. And like the interaction there was basically, he said, well, if anyone here has a problem with me, come talk to me about it. So I went and talked to him about my concerns with him. He assured me that those weren't concerns. I was like, okay, good, good enough. And then the one other time he came like running in to the room I was in and just like, oh, they know cops are coming. There are bus loads of them doing this and that and the other thing. And so a few of us went out to check it out 
and it wasn't happening. So it was like, it was like a false alarm. And that's exactly what I talked to him about. Actually, that was my concern was like, look, I don't have any trust in what the media says about you, but you tend to get people really amped up about what the cops are going to do. And then it distracts and derails everything that, you know, it distracts everyone for a couple hours. So those are my two interactions with him, like expressing we, it was clear that he probably wasn't a big fan of mine. And why, why is that? Well, I think he, he doesn't trust me. He thinks I'm a government mole still working for the RCMP and whatever, believe what you want. Danny, are you a government mole still working for the RCMP? (laughs) No, emphatically. No, 100%. No, they, they did pay me the last couple of months because of a retroactive pay raise that my, that they uh, negotiated from the treasury. You're on the payroll. That's true. So I I did just recently stop receiving my final payments from them, (laughs) but that's because it was retro paid back to like 2017 or something. But he, he, it was obvious he wasn't like super comfortable with me. And I went and talked to him about my concerns with him, but we ironed it out, went our separate ways. And that was pretty much the end of our interaction with each other. Aside from that one instance where he ran in, like raising the alarm, which turned out to be false. Um, Jeremy McKenzie, I met one time very briefly, just in passing. I recognized him as the raging dissident. I said, Hey, I know you. I said, you're the raging dissident. And he's like, you're the former sniper. And I'm like, yep. And then I said, I really liked your video when you were walking on the beach, talking about how poorly soldiers were being treated. And that was it. That was pretty much the end of our interaction. So like they're being painted as these lead convoy organizers by the CBC you know, and being jailed for it, even though they, to my knowledge, they had almost nothing to do with like the day-to-day operation of the convoy. I mean, like, I don't know. They, they probably have their own little social, they probably have, I shouldn't say little, that's, you know, I don't want to be belittling to them, but like they have their social media following. But my impression of them was like, you know, James Bowder, I'm not, I don't really know anything about him, but um, you got Pat King and Jeremy McKenzie, they're basically loud social media personalities who are now being targeted as convoy organizers when I don't believe that's true at all. Hmm. I met, uh, well, I've interviewed uh, Jeremy McKenzie. I didn't get to meet him while I was there. Um, he's just a really smart guy, right? Yeah. Like he, has a, he, he has a way of it, like humor uh, mixed with like getting to the point. And that cuts through to a lot of people. Um mm-hmm but he's also been on Alex Jones. And I mean, if you don't know who Alex Jones is, I mm-hmm. mean, like that puts a red flag on most people. Cause Alex Jones is probably the most outspoken person in all of North America. It doesn't mean he's always wrong or right. It just means that's what he is. And so Jeremy McKenzie has been on there multiple times. That's going to put a red flag on him. And then he has a tendency to say, I, like, I really enjoy uh, Jeremy McKenzie. I really enjoyed having him on here but he has a tendency to say what's going on. Like just like, Mm -hmm. and with his background in the military, I mean, he's, he's a card. Like he is, he is a real card. But once again, like I watched his videos while he was there and he was pretty much making fun of the government for what they were saying about what was actually happening there. Right. Mm -hmm. But Pat King was a guy I bumped into briefly as well. And I, I, uh, one of the things that really surprised me about Pat King is in his videos, I always thought he was like kind of arrogant and 
kind of come off as like maybe even gruff. And then when He's I met rough him, around the edges, yep. But when I met him and shook his hand, he was a soft-spoken guy. And I was like, oh, well, that is a, you know, like, geez. But uh, I don't know. Like, they painted him on the fifth estate as like these mass conspirators of overthrowing yep. the government. Yep. Now like insurrection, pro- right? Yeah. That, like that, that's what, that's the angle they're trying to play. And people are buying it, right? Like the masses that still listen to the CBC and the CTV, they buy it, even though it's complete garbage. That was never the plan. That was never anyone... I don't think I ever, you know, I can't say for certain what either of them said because I haven't watched all of their content, but like that was never part of the convoy goal, right? The goal was ending the mandates, period. Well, once once again, that's why I say if you listen to all their stuff, yeah, they might've said some things. They might've said uh, a lot of different things. Honestly, I can't sit here and say for certain they didn't say we're not going to overthrow the government or there won't be bloodshed or I I have no idea. Mm -hmm. What I can certainly say with confidence is somewhere along the lines from uh, BC to landing in Ottawa, the mentality of the entire convoy changed like immensely. And I, I don't mean to say they were coming with violence from, from one point and then hit a different point and it was different. It just, it kept evolving. And the closer they got, the more peaceful it became. Like, and it was peaceful when it left. Mm-hmm. Like the amount of times that uh, when I was sitting around with any of the truckers, they talked about how, um, you know, like we got to be on our best behavior. We got to make sure we're doing this. We got to make sure we're doing that. We got to make sure we can't do this uh, because they're going to try and portray it as exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember thinking like, oh, okay. You know, like one of the, one of the coolest things I saw was I was in the hotel when the cops showed up mm-hmm. and at the start it was three lanes, like all lanes were jammed with semis. Like you walked mm-hmm. out the door and nobody could move. Like, it was just like, what is going on? And no emergency services could get in, no nothing like that. We and that was the plan. We're gonna jam it up, and we're we're locking the city down. And you're like, holy crap! Like this is this is like intense. And the cops came in and said, you know what, guys? Like, what happens if somebody gets hurt? What happens if we need an ambulance to get through? What happens if it's one of your people? What happens if it's a mom who needs to get you know uh, give birth, right? And all of a sudden, you can see light bulbs come on. And I, what I really appreciate about the truckers was they had their captains and within like, it couldn't have been five minutes, Dan. Like they went out within five minutes, you could drive through the middle lane again mm-hmm. and all the mo- semis had moved. And that wasn't a story that got portrayed about how well they worked with the cops to try and like free up. Cause you said people could come down. They certainly could. When mm-hmm. I left, I drove out. Like mm-hmm. it was just like you hopped on the, and don't get me wrong. It was lined with semis. But like you, there was no parking spots, but you mm-hmm. could, you could drive wherever you wanted to. And one of the things I think that got overshadowed was how cooperative they were. Yeah. They didn't all leave because they weren't going to, that wouldn't have made the point they were looking to get. All of us wanted them to get, but like, they weren't these white supremacists. Unreasonable extremists. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Extremists. No, not that's, not that's even a word. bit. Yeah. So in, in my old world and what you even see on that fifth estate interview is talking about IMVEs, ideologically or ideological motivated violent extremists. And that's how they're trying to paint the convoy by, you know, trying to, um, by by, the things that Pat King had said, right. By showing, by showing every Pat King interview and pulling out little video clips where he says clips of it. And the same thing with, with, uh, with Jeremy McKenzie. And the thing is, is like, I'll be hard on myself. If you go back on me, you can find stupid things. I'm sure you can. 
Jeremy McKenzie and Pat King are just a little more aggressive in how they portray things. They're, they're, they're loud social media personalities who are the easy target, right? That's right. Or, that are the or e- they have been made to be the easy target. Easy target. Even though like, um, I, I sincerely don't think that Pat King is a white supremacist. I, I, I don't believe that. And I do think that the media is trying to clip little things that he said to make him appear that way. hundred percent. Same, you know, they've tried to paint Jeremy McKenzie as like this right-wing militia leader because of Diagalon. And when this you actually- evil mastermind. Yes. And when you actually like even scratch the surface of the Diagalon thing, it it was like a satirical comment, like, like almost like a satirical comedic type thing that he created out he of has, humor, at, right? Like, like so many people, he has a following because he's saying things that people are like, that actually makes sense. Like, I agree mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. And, and he actually talks about things like his stuff mm-hmm. is like, you listen to it. You're like, man, that makes a ton of sense. Like when he was on here, it was the day I left for the convoy. Mm-hmm. And like, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, holy crap. That makes sense. Right. And he, yeah. Did he, like, he didn't say these crazy things. He just said like, I want my freedoms back. I want to be able to do things mm-hmm. again. Yeah. And then, you know, like, Along the lines, somehow, you know, they've, while well, they've just taken a, they've taken shots at him and Pat King and everything else. I want to talk about, you know, we talk about Pat King and, and Jeremy McKenzie. Can we talk about the paranoia? Like yes. I, I, the, the mole thing. I, I joke around with you if you're still working, uh, you know, as, as a mole, but like, that was like tons of people asked me that. Actually, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if people asked other people if I was until I went completely dark and just disappeared. And then maybe they thought I was paid off to go away. Cause the amount of rumors that I had on why I left, uh, from, uh, I don't know, drinking, uh, to, uh, DUI to lost my job to, I was, I was arrested. Uh, they shut down everything. Like, I mean, the rumors are rampant and I don't, I mean, geez, I did go silent there. So I fair enough on the rumors, but like hearing, I, I've interviewed all, all you guys. Well, for the most part, right? So, uh, like Chris Barber, yourself, Jeremy McKenzie, uh, are a few that come right to mind. Yours one was interesting, but the paranoia thing, I think, would be interesting for people to hear about. Well, yeah. So there was definitely, and still is, a significant amount of distrust, even within the, the freedom movement, right? Like I feel that a ton of, I mean, there's definitely people that don't trust me, whatever, you know, believe what you want, but there even, even other figures within within the convoy, people that have even met you. uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I think most people that have any spent any time with me would know that that's not true, but I think, you know, the, the concept that, here I am a relatively young, healthy, fit guy with a ton of money invested in me in training by the RCMP. Like the mindset is, oh, there's no way that they would just let him go. Well, they did. They, they turned their back on hundreds of do, us. Do people right? not realize what happened in the last two years? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, 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 I don't even try and defend myself from those actions. Like it's, or those allegations, like, look, if you believe it or not, like that's, 
this that's is, on you, right? This like, is I, the I'm... world. This is the world we've been living in now, though, for mm -hmm. myself for a year, right? Like mm -hmm. that's that's been maybe one of the toughest things, Dan. Is like I, I get a guy like yourself, and I go, I wonder if he's real. You know, like <laughs> it's a Zoom call, right? Like yeah, me yeah. and you, and, and I know people that uh, listen to the podcast. They go, uh, um, you know, when you hear me talk over and over and over again, I, I think most people are like, man, he's real. You get a guy mm -hmm. like Dan Bulford and you go, I wonder if that guy actually exists. Mm -hmm. You know, like it, it, it's an abstract thought, right? Like he's only done a couple of interviews. If you search him, it's not like you're everywhere and it's not like people are meeting you. It's not like you got a cross Canada tour happening. Mm -hmm. And you go, I wonder, I wonder if he is a plan. And then I met you and I'm like, yeah, there's Dan Bulford. This is awesome, <laughs> right? And I'm like, I'm, I have an interesting perspective because I like, I'm not like a truck captain. I didn't just show up with mm -hmm. my 10 guys and go, who are all these people? By the mm -hmm. time I get there, I've interviewed half of you. And I'm like, holy crap. Like I know a podcast is a weird thing. And I, 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 maybe I, you could share your perspective because you get interviewed mm -hmm. from my seat. By the time we're done with this, I feel like I kind of know you on a bit of a personal level because it's mm. like, I don't know. How many people do you sit and have deep conversations with or even just listen to for a couple hours. Like I would say you don't do that very often, except when you're no. in my chair, I do it all the time. And I feel like I get hmm. like, if you're going to fool me, I'm not saying you can't because somebody certainly will. And they probably have. But if you're throwing your hat in the ring of speaking out against your government and your career, man, you got to have balls of steel to be doing that. And I don't know. That's my perspective on it. Well, I just, there's too many opinions to worry about trying to control people's opinion. So I just take the mindset, like, I know who I am. The people that I trust and care about know who I am and know what I'm about. If, if, if you want to question me, go ahead and question me and try and look into it if you so choose. But I do think there is because there is such a sense of mistrust because people feel like they've been lied to for like, well, at very least the last two years, you know, specific to the, you know, COVID yeah. um, that it, 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 it has created mistrust in just about everything and everyone. And so, you know, like uh, there, there, there's some, there's some, personalities out there that have a significant following, whether they're YouTubers, uh, podcasters that have their own doubts about some of the people that were part of the convoy, you know, and I've, I feel that concerns about Tamara and I feel that concerns about Chris Barber, like people asking me, like, do you think they're legit? And my answer is like, look, I have no, I have no reason to question the authenticity of anyone that I came into contact with. Like I believe, I don't have any concerns. I do not believe that Tamara Leach is a plant. I do not believe that Chris Barber is a plant. I don't believe that Pat King is a plant. I don't think Jeremy McKenzie or myself, like I think people are genuinely who they presented themselves to be during that convoy. It's just a bunch of people from different backgrounds that have been pushed too far. And so they push back in the way that they know how. And it, what's, what's hard about it, though, is that things can go viral so quickly. 
is that like you start, you see the same social media messaging, like filtering through over and over and over again. And then it's easy to go down the, the, uh, I hate to use the term, but the conspiratorial path about everything now, right? Because yeah. everyone feels as though they've been lied to so much about everything that they're constantly questioning, who can I believe? What can I trust? And I even find myself doing that on a frequent basis. Like I've had an outpouring of people contact me wanting to give me information, but a lot of it is way outside of my scope of expertise, but they're pretty persistent about having me involved in like, they, they want my input on this initiative that they're working on. And I just think I can't, I, I can't help but think to myself, even like, is this a deliberate distraction? Is someone deliberately trying to distract me from what I need to be focused on by trying to bombard me with other information, like just overwhelm me? So, I mean, I understand that paranoia, but what I have tried to message to people, like public messaging to people, and I did make a little rumble video about it, like shortly after the convoy was disbanded, because it was like, there was a lot of division being created, even within the freedom movement, right? Like, you know, people with their own... Um, ideas about what the how what how people should be operating what we should be doing next it's like just don't cancel each other out right like don't engage in the same cancel culture that we complain about all the time from from the government and the mainstream media right like if someone brings you information of concern make some effort to look into it to either verify it or confirm it false before you just like pump it out into the ether for other people to spread and spread and spread, right? Like take some measure to authenticate the information or prove that it's false. You know, I mean, and, and, and that's not really easy to do all the time, but don't just pass it on and pass it on without trying to verify it first. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, I think that is, you know, uh, I think social media can be used for good, but I think it can also become very toxic because th things can just Explore. go viral. Things can yeah. go viral so quickly. Right. And I think that we need to be better than that. Right. We criticize the government of canceling people and we criticize the mainstream narrative or uh, the mainstream media. And like I refer to the, as the woke mob, right of canceling anyone who says anything contrary to what they're the messaging that they're putting out but then we are we have been engaging in that behavior ourselves right like just you know pumping out allegations or are sorry not pump, uh, spreading allegations about people that we have taken zero steps to verify whether they're true or not and that that is it's toxic and all it does is create further division and it actually plays right into the hand of the people that want the freedom movement to fail. Right. It's we're basically doing their job for them. Well, right? it was one of the, if, one we, of the... if we continuously cancel each other out without, you know, without any real solid evidence that the information is true. Yeah. It was one of the, one of the things I noticed in the time I was there was the, it almost felt like, every day there was a new reason not to trust each other, right? Like mm -hmm. if they could sow enough seeds of doubt, then, then you would turn on each other. Right. I think it's mm -hmm. one of the cool things that happened, at least in the time I was there 
is that people didn't turn more on each other, right? Because there was a ton of stuff that was put out there. Um, and everybody was so nervous that, uh, I don't know, people were there for the wrong reasons or people were put in place to be there for the wrong reasons or people, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, I just found if you kept talking to people, you could find out what, what their reason for being there was. And, uh, um, and usually by opening up a discussion and talking to people, so many good things come out of that. Well, that's mm-hmm. why when you bring up Chris Barber, I'm um, like, gee, I don't know. Like I knew him before they even started on the convoy. Uh, just briefly, I-, I might add, right? But in my interview, I was like, gee, he doesn't sound like he just sounds like a guy who's frustrated, right? Yeah, well- and man, he's and he's like so many others. Oh, and he's vaccinated, and he's you know, and he's all these things. It's like. I don't know. Did he expect what was going to happen there? I highly doubt that. Like I was sitting in the room at the start when you realized there was no plan in place. Like, Oh, like everybody had this plan to get to Ottawa, but now you're in Ottawa. Now what? Uh, like <laughs> you're like, this isn't some master plan. Like this no. was like, people's frustrations and there's energy it's time to go do something okay what are we gonna do convoy to ottawa great All holy right. crap there's a ton of people pushing this oh and the gofundme just went 10 million <laughs> right and you're like yeah. now what well it was a giant conspiracy really uh, I, uh, I, I think it was a bunch of people that are frustrated that's what mm-hmm. it is i mean that you know that mindset that it was some master plan that was never true. Like, like you said, people had enough. The truckers kicked it off. They started something that I think millions of us were waiting for, right? Like we were waiting for certain aspects of society on mass and large numbers to stand up and say enough is enough. And the truck convoy is what initiated that, that, that spark, if you will. And as they came across the country, it built momentum and built momentum and more and more support and people got more and more excited. But I, they're the only plan that I'm aware of for when they actually landed here was the plan that was provided to me by the Ottawa police service about where trucks were going, what routes the trucks were going to come into the city and where trucks were supposed to park and stage. And beyond that, like we, you know, volunteers were scrambling to get things organized to be able to actually like help take care of the truck convoy when they arrived in Ottawa. And then beyond that, it was just like, you're just figuring things out on a daily basis. I go, and like you said, what's the fire that I need to put out right now? What's the problem that's right in front of my face that I got to deal with right now. And then Kate, yeah, I think that's done. Now I got to deal with the next one. And like for me, well, and for many of us, not just me, but that first week and a half, almost first two weeks was like, there was hardly a, hardly any sleep. Like it was go, go, go. Cause the phone just didn't stop ringing. Right. It was nonstop. And I enjoyed it. Like it was, it was, it was stressful at times because there was so much on the go, especially those first few days when we were like utter chaos. But once we started to kind of get into the groove of like, Hey, who is good at what job, then it was, it became a lot more manageable, but there, I remember laughing when we, we were all laughing when we saw like the, the then police chief uh, slowly 
out of police chief talking about how like you know they're 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 highly organized and well funded it's just like man like we are not highly organized like we're making this up as we go and like this is a massive thing and we're trying to accomplish this on a like as we go and and not and like and well funded like okay yeah there was this big pot of money with this gofundme frozen inaccessible frozen yeah and then uh given back and then a big pot of money from give send go frozen unable to access and so like it was based on the generosity of people's donations that people were able to survive that length of time there right it it was it wasn't because we were some big organized well funded oiled machine and even the way that the media tried to portray it like you know people like me and Tom, you know, people that have like this, you know, former police tactical background and former military background and like all these, you know, they're, they're run like a well-run military operation. It's like, no, people just, you're talking about working class people who are just willing Listen, to get they, out there and get the job done and take care of themselves. One right? of the coolest like, things I saw firsthand was when they were trying to get full fuel to places and they're like, well, what can we do? somebody's like carry Jerry cans in. yeah carry yeah. it in all right and so all right yeah. so then what did you have you had you had groups of guys hauling around full jerry cans to fill mm-hmm. up trucks and i witnessed that full head i'm like well i never all thought day. i i never thought i'd see a kid's uh, wagon used for this purpose but mm-hmm. i'm like that's pretty cool right like i mean mm-hmm. i don't think that's well organized like th- i mean that's like adjusting to the the problems on the fly well we got to get fuel in there okay how do we do that well, lo- we got manpower. Let's do, use it. A lot of things that we were trying to brainstorm how to solve problems just happened. They, they solved themselves because people were out on the street and there's like, well, I'm not waiting around for someone else to come save the day. I'm just going to go take care of business and people just get together and do things. Most of the time it was very helpful, right? Like um, one example is security volunteers through the night was an issue. I didn't have enough people to like maintain convoy security through the night but we had a whole bunch of truckers and so i had this idea in my head i'm like well you know what maybe we can go to the truck drivers themselves and we can talk to them about doing like a like almost like a community watch type mindset right you know work in pairs so that they're never alone they can rotate in shifts because we just don't have enough volunteers to like patrol the streets all through the middle of the night when i actually went to go talk to someone about it they had already set it up on their own and i was like oh well Perfect. There we go. <laughs> they, were, they, they watched their blocks or their groups they, of trucks. Yes. Yeah. They, they created like block captains and they set their own schedule to like kind of watch things out because, or watch over things because trucks were getting vandalized and people were being like harassed in the middle of the night by like whoever it may be, like people who were just against the convoy or Antifa type personalities. We don't know for certain, but you know, trucks were being damaged. People were being like kind of, you know, targeted in the middle of the night. So they, I was trying to think of a, of a solution that would be doable based on who we had access to resource wise. And then when I went to go talk to someone about it, about trying to like pitch this idea, they had already set that up themselves. And I'm like, Oh, well, perfect. You beat me to the punch. And that, that was the beauty of that, like that, that, that working class group of people, right? Like they're not afraid to just, you know what, there's a problem. What do we do to fix it? And they fixed it. And it, that really made my life a lot easier once they had that established. And I think what we, what we witnessed 
you know, they tried to paint it as like this highly organized military style operation. It's like, no, people just are really like th this class of people is just really good at getting stuff done when stuff needs to get done. Right. They're really good at taking care of business when there's a job that needs to get done and a problem that needs to be solved. And then on the other side, it was like, well, and like Tom Maraza has said this publicly as well, like what high speed military tactics did they use? They did the convoy did exactly what they said it was going to do. They drove to Ottawa, they parked as close to parliament as they could, and they didn't leave. They said that they're, we're going to Ottawa, we're going to park at parliament, and we're not leaving until they drop the mandates. And that's what they did. And then there was actual negotiation to move trucks. And that was, uh, I think that was even in the media recently. There was negotiation to move trucks closer into the downtown core out of the outside of the city or uh, uh, more, sorry, more peripheral areas of the city. And then it was the police that shut that down, not the truckers. Here's a question for you. I read an article about a baseball field where mm -hmm. trucker, truckers made a circle. They put up uh, um, like almost looked like plywood. So you couldn't see in, there was only one entrance and this was almost militarized. Did like, I didn't hear anything about this, although I was not there. Obviously everyone knows my story. I wasn't there the full time. So I read this story and I'm like, gee, that's one I, I hadn't heard of. Did you hear anything about this? Did you see this? Do you know what it was? So I, I never did make it there, but there is a baseball stadium right near the old RCMP headquarters. So that, that, that old headquarters is mostly vacant now, but on Coventry road, there is a, I think it used to be the Ottawa champions was the name of the baseball team, like okay. AAA type baseball, but that Coventry road was one of the staging areas identified by the Ottawa police for truck for like overflow trucks to park at. And so that was one of the staging areas, right? Because not everyone could get downtown and they, they, they quickly kind of set up their own base camp there. And like our goal was to just provide them with like, Hey, what do you need for food? Who needs a shower? Things like that. Like we we're trying to help provide the basic necessities of life. And, you know, we, they essentially even created their own security system in place just to avoid, you know, like uh, unfriendly people accessing the site. Right. Like there was, there was no, there was no, shortage of journalists who want to portray the convoy in a negative light. There is no shortage of uh, Ottawa residents who believed the narrative and wanted to like counter protest against the convoy. Although I think that that number is much smaller than the media would have you believe. So they set up their own operation there, but it wasn't, wasn't militarized. I mean, like it was just, People set up a camp and with, on their own initiative, they decided to put some, they decided to put some measures in place to make sure it wasn't just that people couldn't just come and go um, without like unchecked, right? Like making sure that they're not going to allow any instigators in that would then try and, you know, incite some kind of um, altercation with, with some of the truck drivers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I was just curious if you in your in the, the the duration of it, if there was some bad characters that slowly filtered into Ottawa, because that's the way the news that's the way the article that I read portrayed that baseball field is where it was 
some bad actors were in there and that they were trying to, you know, once again, I, 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 once I got back here, I had a ton of people send me a ton of articles and I, at times I just, I didn't read any of them. I was just like, I just, I just can't. Um, other times it's funny. I would, I read a couple of them and one of them that caught my eye was this baseball field. And then it talked about how, uh, there was bad people starting to filter to Ottawa because the longer it went on, the more it attracted different people. And I was like, well, I can't tell you anything. Like I wasn't there. And the entire time I was there, anyone that looked to me like a bad character, I went and talked to, and they always turned out to be like a genuine human being with, you know, their reasons for being there, no different than me. And I always thought that was like pretty cool. Like, you know, somebody looks intimidating, maybe go just smile at them and say hello and see what their story is because maybe they're just a regular human being. And that's what I found by and large was if you just went and smiled and talked to people, including cops, including business owners, including everybody who was there, usually they were just like, you know, it's funny how a smile disarms people and then they'll just talk to you and they'll even laugh at you for being like, Oh, you thought I was what, you know, like, I don't know mm-hmm. how many times I, I, I was like, Oh yeah, I heard you're Antifa. And they're like, Antifa. No. And I'm like, Oh, that's what I heard. Right. And you just carry on. But this baseball field, I was like, Hmm, I never saw that. I never got a chance to walk in there and actually introduce myself. I, I don't know. I mean, specific, do you have any specific information about what kind of bad actors? Cause I, there was, there was elements that were very protective of their area, but like, I don't think there was any malicious intent there. I think they were just like, they wanted to make sure that the people that were staged there were looked after and they didn't want to just let anyone infiltrate the group. Because again, a lot, like we talked about before, a level of mistrust and a little, and maybe even borderline a little bit paranoia at times about like what kind of big government crackdown is going to come crashing down on us. Right. There was a lot of people that were of the mindset that like, the intelligence world and the police world was like going to like plan some major operation to discredit the convoy. Right. Like there's a lot of people that had a legitimate fear of that. And like to the point where there was a lot of fear that they would, that government agents, let's say would infiltrate the convoy and, you know, instigate violence so that the convoy looked bad yeah. or plant weapons so that the convoy looked bad. There was a lot of people that really believed that. And actually um, I did get some information at one point that there was a plan to plant firearms within the convoy in order to like create like a false flag event. Um, I believe that information was reliable based on the source of, from which it came. And so the first people that we notified was the police. And then we notified the truck captains like to try and push out uh, a broadcast to, for people to remain vigilant. And then we did a public announcement about it. And, and it, all, it kind of fit um, right around the same time that there was like 2,000 firearms stolen from like a, a trailer or a tractor trailer down in the Peterborough area, which is not far from Ottawa. Right. So there were, I think a lot of that, um, you could call it hypervigilance about who had access to certain areas was because people were very fearful of that being a reality, right? Like some, 
and and even if I I didn't have the same concern about like law enforcement planting evidence because I know like that's high, that's very illegal, but but I wouldn't but it wouldn't surprise me if a group that was against the purpose of the freedom convoy would try and infiltrate and plant something to discredit the convoy. Does that make sense? Like yeah. a, like a lone actor or a small group of people that are like hardcore against the freedom convoy. And so they're going to try and do something to bring negative, negative attention, which could like, you know, destroy the convoy's reputation in the media, turn the public against them and to even potentially, um, you know, initiate like a large scale police crackdown right prior to what did eventually happen yeah it you do mention then that you did have reliable information at one point that they were trying mm-hmm. to do something like that but overall mm-hmm. you didn't witness um a group of bad actors in ottawa no 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 never and i think um like i think some of the initial people like when you talk about plants like i think the guy carrying the confederate flag was a plant like from outside of the convoy deliberately trying to walk in there to make the convoy look bad. Same with the guy who was carrying the the swastika, like the Nazi flag, right? Because when the vast majority of people from the convoy saw that they called it out and told those people, you're not welcome here. Get that. Like, that's not what we're about, right? We're not about the hate, so to speak. One of the, one of the cool things that people, probably don't realize was the flags that I did see there was mm-hmm. um was an infinity flag which was mm-hmm. uh I believe if I'm recalling this correct was a first nations and the french working together uh geez I'm butchering the story a bit but I found that one interesting it was everywhere and the other one was a purple and white it was these two it was like lines and it was supposedly the first flag of Canada. And I was like, wow, I've gotten a history lesson just walking around a protest. That was, that was rather cool. Now, I've, uh, I've kept you uh, for some time here. So mm-hmm. we got to do the, the crude master, uh, the final five here, which is just, I've changed it up because I don't like the five questions. I just want to put a, a time slot in here that I don't want to keep you for five hours. So we, we got five, 10, 20 minutes. It doesn't matter how long it goes for. But uh, a shout out to Heath and Tracy and, and Crude Master for supporting the podcast. Now, I have waited over an hour now to ask you about the one thing that I should have probably asked first. The video of you getting arrested really mm-hmm. bothered me because out of a, Chris Barber getting arrested was a tough one to watch. Mm-hmm. But in his position, I was like, I feel like that was coming for him. Tamara was probably coming for him. You were really interesting. And how you did it was like, well... I don't know if there's a Danny Bulford move. I feel it was very Danny Bulford, but <laughs> I'm like, I watched you. You gotta, you gotta give me some, and the listeners, some, some insight into that day, uh, giving yourself up for arrest, how that came to be, why, or I don't know, like what they arrested you for. What was, I don't even know, like, where did you go after you got arrested right. and how long did that all last for? Okay. So, Well, as soon as Chris was arrested, that's when I knew that they're going to target people that they view as organizers, including me being one of them, right? Um, So I wasn't 
I wasn't real surprised. I, I, I mean, I don't, I'm still convinced that like no one that was arrested committed a crime, like committed a legitimate crime. We tried desperately to keep everything within the confines of the law. And every time a new order came out, you know, we had a legal team look at it and to make sure that whatever we were doing protest wise was still within the framework of the law. But like the new police chief came in, the emergencies act was invoked. As soon as they arrested Chris, it's like, okay, they're targeting people that they perceive to be like the head organizers. Right. And so I went out with, for a walkabout later on that day with Tamara and a few others, like expecting a bunch of us to get arrested. And I was like, well, I would rather just get this over with than bring a bunch of people, other people into jeopardy. And that didn't happen. I mean, you probably saw the video of Tamara get arrested. I was right there and I was fully expecting myself and one of the other people with us to get arrested. And they, they didn't have any interest in us whatsoever. So the next day, was the Friday that the mass mobilization started on the 18th to start dismantling the convoy. And so my wife and I had been down at uh, the Rideau Sussex corner, like at the front line. And I was, I was, I was down there basically pleading with the Ottawa police emergency services unit. Like you don't have to do this. You know, this is wrong. If you know that this is wrong in your heart, all you have to do is say no. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to go public like I did. All you have to do is just say, nope, I'm not doing this. And you know that like discipline would likely be minimal, right? Like, you know, you, you could, whatever, you could have any number of reasons for refusing to participate. And that, that was, that was the angle. I was trying to like tug at their heart a little bit and be like, okay, hey, come on. Like this is a peaceful protest. There's no need for you guys to me to move on people with force. And they would, they would push in and take ground and then kind of stop and wait. And then they'd push in and take ground and stop and wait. And that's kind of what I was expecting to be the extent of it, right? Like I thought that they would push enough ground that they could then remove trucks. Like I thought that was going to be their tactic. So I was down there and I didn't want to leave because I, I felt very, I felt very um, strongly that like these truckers came here to stand up for me and my family when nobody else did, no other profession did. I'm not going to, I'm not going to abandon them. Right. And so, but then there was like, there was a press conference being held at the Lord Elgin hotel that I was supposed to be at. And I was late for it. And the one guy that was with me is like, come on, you, you got to go, you got to go to this. Like they're, they're calling, they want to know where you are. And they're like, you're, you're, you know, your voice can make a bigger impact than you being right here right now. So I was like, okay. So I ran up to the Lord, Lord Elgin. I gave a very brief little, like kind of impromptu, uh, I guess, speech you could say about what was happening out on the street and how, like how it broke my heart that what was happening with law enforcement and, uh, versus the peaceful protest. And that was right after Tom, Tom Raza had, had spoken. And then right after that, my wife showed me a message on her phone and it was from a neighbor of ours saying like the news is reporting that the police are looking for Danny to arrest him. And I mean, I know that they, you know, they, 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 they watch mainstream media. So I was like, okay, well, 
If the news is reporting that the police are looking to arrest me, it's probably true. So I knew where they were, like they were still down at Rideau and Sussex, right? Like the big police action, that's where it all was at that moment in time. And then there was this young guy there who was already making like a documentary. And so he kind of like walked along with me as I was preparing to go. And I was like, well, again, let's just, let's go get this over with. Um, hopefully keep a bunch of attention away from other people. And I was also thinking like this, you know, hopefully, hopefully that, you know, that, that I could try and at least convince a few of them to not continue like me turning myself in, knowing that I used to be one of them. <laughs> maybe, maybe I overestimate my importance, but <laughs> I was really hoping that like, that would be a hard thing for a cop to do. Uh, to, it would be, I was hoping that it would be hard for the police to arrest me. So I walked down to the line. I found a line of RCMP officers, which was perfect. And I just walked up and said, look, I hear that you're looking for me. Like, I'm here to turn myself in. And then I think I asked, is that true? And then the one big, the one big officer who did end up arresting me, he kind of got like a, a, a prompt from his supervisor to yeah grab him. So he grabbed me and he arrested me for mischief. It was, you know, it was very low key. It was, it wasn't stressful. Like I knew, I knew exactly what to expect. And I knew that I knew that they weren't going to mistreat me or anything like that. It was totally peaceful, but then I was, I was walked to the back of the line back towards like, they had like a lineup of people that had been arrested throughout the morning already in between the Weston hotel and the Shaw center. And that's where they had like a, a, like all the prisoner transport vehicles, like the paddy wagons and handover teams and a bunch of, a bunch of guys who did my old job, like emergency response team guys were back there. The, the horse, the horses, the mounted units were back there. And uh, so I got walked to that lineup. And then I actually stood there in that line for probably close to like two hours. And this, this RCMP officer that arrested me, he was, <laughs> I think he was grateful to have a break from the front. Um, I don't think a lot of them were real excited about being up there. And yeah, ultimately I got handed over to the Ottawa police service. And then I got put into like, they took a photograph of me and um, just took like my tombstone data, like my name, date of birth, address, all that stuff. And then they eventually put me in a transport vehicle. I was taken to the Ottawa police headquarters on uh, Elgin street, brought into the cell block there. When I was in the cell block there, they also advised that I was also under arrest for disobeying a court order. And, um, obstruction i think i think obstruct obstructing a police officer and uh i was like oh okay that seemed to be the blanket charges that they were telling everyone i got my i got booked in i got my phone call to a lawyer i got put in a cell and then i just sat there for like roughly eight hours or so eight and a half hours like i think i was in custody for a total of like ten and a half hours and I've just, <laughs> I actually thought like, you know what, I'll take this opportunity to try and get some sleep. <laughs> and so I, it wasn't very comfortable, but I did, I did nap a little bit. Um, but I was sitting there thinking about like, oh man, I wonder what it's like out there now. Eventually the detective, like the, the well, there's two of them, but 
I only got the name of one, the great big guy. And um, he, they brought me out of the cell right, right around midnight. And they had all my personal belongings and my boots and everything. And I was, I was sitting there thinking like, okay, they're going to try and like offer like some kind of a, a negotiation, right? Like, Hey, you know, if you provide a statement, if you cooperate, you know, we'll, we'll let you go kind of idea. And so that's what I was expecting. And they took me up into an interview room. I sat there for a little bit and then he, he finally, the big detective comes in and sits down, which by the way, he's a homicide detective. So they have homicide detectives working a mischief investigation. I mean, I know the convoy was a big event, but like that in itself, I've said it before and I'll say it again. It needs to be out there publicly. They pulled seasoned detectives off of murder investigations to investigate peaceful protesters who had trucks parked downtown and honk their horns. Just because those truck drivers and supporters stood up against the government. So neglecting murder investigations to investigate big rigs parked downtown honking horns. That in itself needs to be a story, right? Like it's threatening. It's threatening the power structure, right? That's, that's what the trucker convoy did. mm -hmm. But it's like, what's, what's, what's the bigger priority here? A murder uh, or a mischief. But right? me, like, me and you, we make that call. That's that's nice and easy, but we're not the ones that get to make that call. And as we're mm-hmm. seeing, you know, like you understand the, the law side of it. And I certainly am new. Into, a little bit. A little I'm bit. certainly <laughs> new into the, the uh, law enforcement, I meant. Yeah. I'm certainly new into the media side of things. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the blatant disregard for what actually went on there is appalling in my eyes, right? And mm-hmm. there's like I can sit and dance around why they did it and and try and like be like, geez, I don't know why they did that. It's become very evident. Now that's the hardest thing to to like just admit, like, hmm, okay. But mm-hmm. they pull you out, they they arrest you. Yeah. I mean well, so he, he sits me down in the interview room, great big guy. And he just looks at me and he says, Why are you here? (laughs) Well, because I was arrested for mischief. And then I told them about like, you know, and then when I got to the cell block, I was told about the disobey a court order and the obstruction. And when I was in the, when I was in the cell thinking about that, I was just like, I wasn't overly concerned because I'm like, okay, I pretty sure they don't have any evidence that I committed any of those offenses. And I don't think that anyone committed any of those offenses. I just think that, but that's what they're going after people with, right? But the, you know, mostly surrounding trucks and horns. And I said, well, I don't have a truck down there. And even if they did, I still think that's like, it's super weak, right? But anyways, he, he, he asks me why I'm there. I tell him and he says to me, did you ask to get arrested? And I, I thought to myself, I'm like, well, that's not how this works, but I'm like, no. And then I told him the story about being down at the line, going to the press conference, getting the message from my wife, going down and presenting myself and being arrested. You could tell he was visibly annoyed that I was there. And probably because he's a homicide investigator, 
who's been pulled off of homicides to work mischief files at midnight on Friday, right? Like from my experience as a cop, when you have important files to investigate, like serious crimes, you don't want to be wasting your time on the mischief file, right? Like that's a waste of your time and energy, but you know that like, but you're probably getting, he's probably getting huge pressure from the boss that this is your primary focus. This is the, like the priority for the city of Ottawa. And so he, he's annoyed that I'm there. And he, and he just says to me, he's like, well, we're not going to charge you with anything. So I'm not going to basic. I'm not going to ask you like the same questions I've been asking everybody else for like the last four hours or whatever. I think, I think that's what he said. And he says, so we're just going to let you go. And I'm like, okay. And then he says, but this has to end. I said, well, I agree. He said, well, a lot of people got hurt today. I didn't know. So I said, well, on which side? He said, well, I think on both sides. And I said, well, our message was always to be peaceful, no matter what. And he said, well, I don't know if that, I don't know if that, I don't know if that happened today. And I was like, well, I've been in here. I couldn't tell you. So he ended up like walking me to the front, kicking me loose. And as, as I was walking back to the hotel to go link up with my wife, hoping that she hadn't herself been arrested. Um, I talked to an RCMP officer and I talked to a couple OPP officers and I talked to an Ottawa police officer and I asked all of them on my walk if they knew of any serious injuries that occurred. And the only person who said anything was the RCMP officer who mentioned that the only thing he was aware of was the horse trampling incident. And he said like he had heard a lot of people were saying that that lady had died, but he thought that that was wrong that, and that she was going to be okay. But that was the only thing anyone mentioned. Like when I asked the OPP and the OPS, I just simply said like, Hey, are you guys all okay today? Yep. Yep. We're good. Thanks. Both of them. So I was like, okay, detective, you're just trying to like tug at my heartstrings about cops getting hurt. Right. So then I got back and linked up with my wife and she showed me a bunch of the videos of what had occurred that day. Like some of the more, some of the more violent arrests and the, and the horse trampling incident. And I was like, did any, does anyone know if any cops got hurt? And they're like, no one had any information of that. And I still have not heard of any reports of that to date. So I think he was, he was probably trying to like manipulate me a little bit, which, you know, they do that, right. When they want to try and how, how um, tug at your heartstrings a little bit to elicit a, a reaction. You being a married man, a family man, how, uh, mm-hmm. If it's not too personal of a question, Dan, how mm-hmm. um, how was the conversation with your wife of like I'm gonna be arrested? You know, like I'm pretty sure I'm gonna be arrested. Oh, like, uh, my my wife, she was. There's no way that she was gonna back down either, out of the fear of that happening. Like she's, my wife is a warrior, and she was like, "Yep." And I kept telling her, I'm going to say, Kate, I don't want you to be right down at the front of the line with me, like, because the kids will need at least one of us home. And she was just like, she refused to leave my side. She's like, nope, there's no way I'm going anywhere. Because <laughs> I mean, thankfully, we had uh, grandparent help here at the time. Yeah. But yeah, no, she, 
we were fully, we were fully prepared to deal with those consequences. And I mean, even for me, when they were, when there was a lot more rhetoric, like when I found out like the first couple of arrests that occurred that were actually convoy people being like the aiding and abetting mischief for fueling trucks. I was like, okay, that's it. That's the best they got. Like who's even ever heard of aiding and abetting a mischief, right? Like, uh, like it, it's, and, and typically um, like the way a mischief works from a police standpoint is like, okay, if you break my window, that's a mischief. That's property damage, right? It's either under 5,000 or over 5,000. But then there's also a subsection, which is what they used here in Ottawa, um, where you're, you're accused of obstructing the lawful enjoyment of property. And so that's the angle that they're working with these mischiefs, right? Like they're, it's not about physical property damage. It's about they're trying to accuse the truck convoy of obstructing people's lawful enjoyment of their property. But my experience with that from when I was working like uh, general duty, like a, a patrol officer was that if Sean Newman had a party at his house and someone showed up uninvited and was like causing a scene, you know, drunk fighting with people refusing to leave the house, that's not causing a disturbance because he's in a private residence. But me as the police, when I show up, if he refuses to leave, I can arrest him for mischief to prevent the continuation of that offense. Once he's removed, you know, he might go to cells to sober up and then get punted, like, sorry, punted, released when sober with no charge. <laughs> but I've never heard of anyone actually being charged with mischief for obstructing the lawful enjoyment of property. It basically was like a method for us to remove a problem from a situation. Once the situation is no longer a problem, you're gone, right? It's like, it's a way for us to like, Okay, you need to leave. You're refusing. Okay, you're under arrest for mischief. I take you away from the area. Once you're no longer a problem and I'm no longer concerned that you're going to go back, you're not going to be charged. And so once I learned that the first couple people arrested were arrested for uh, like related to the fuel for aiding and abetting mischief, I was like, oh, that's it? Because we had heard all this rhetoric about like, you know, their insurrection and domestic terrorism. And I even thought to myself at the time, I'm like, that's comedic, right? Like, I'm like, okay, I, I look forward to the day I'm sitting in an interview room across the table from an inset investigator, like a lot of them, which some of them, which I know, you know, the officer in charge of that unit that I know and be like, do you really view me as a national security threat as a domestic terrorist? Like, for the last number of years of my time on my team, I was trying to convince senior management in the RCMP or like in the, in my division anyway, that my team should be a full-time counterterrorism team or a full-time hostage rescue team, like a combination, like trying to recreate, like give us the official mandate for hostage rescue, domestic counterterrorism. That's was my goal from my old team. And I would go around to different RCMP units and try and pitch that idea to them because, you know, overall we have teams, emergency response teams all across the country, but no one team has that specific mandate. You know what I mean? Like you're, everyone is basically expected to fulfill that role, but it's very difficult when you need, you need 
resources and training and budgets like to try and recreate what the FBI has down in the States. And so I was just like, you know, I, I, even that, even when they were, even when the politicians, especially the city politicians and the police were, and the like police chief were ramping up the rhetoric about like holding the city hostage and domestic terrorism. I was like, well, it is clearly that is not the case that you would actually have evidence that that is what we are. So bring it on. You want to put me in an interview room and try and interview me regarding domestic you're, terrorism? Sure. Let's, let's a, have that conversation. You're, you're in an interesting position knowing the inside of that world. A lot of people wouldn't feel that comfortable, especially you know, knowing. For sure. Yeah. Especially knowing <clears throat> that like, well, I don't know, just how naive I was. I assume there was a ton of people in that room that were just trying to organize truckers. They weren't, you know, sure in the back of their brain going, I may go to jail for this. Maybe I won't. I have no idea. But to actually get thrown in there with charges of whatever and mischief being the one that, that got thrown around. And obviously that's what they held a lot of people with. Um, not knowing the inside of that world, I could see how a ton of people would be like, Oh yeah. I, I don't know. But you, you're an interesting case because obviously, you know, uh, the inner workings of all that and kind of get like, well, that's, that's not a big deal. Like there was a ton of days there where there was a ton going on. If you didn't have the right person sitting there that could just deescalate things, things would escalate because I mean, they're going to come arrest everybody. Oh my God. Right. And everybody would freak out. But if you had the right person sitting there, they could be like, well, come on guys. Like, realistically, uh, X, Y, Z, right. I don't know what X, Y, Z is, but there was multiple people, lots of times that would just deescalate a situation immediately. It was, it was kind of interesting to watch actually from afar. Well, I hope that that was some of what I was able to bring to the table and I hope this doesn't sound pretentious, but when I was asked probably to help will. in, yeah, probably will. Uh, but when I was asked to help in that role, I did have a thought process of like, you know what? I would rather have me in that position, you know, dealing with security, liaising with the police, because I know that world in Ottawa, specific to these big events, as opposed to someone who has no idea, but pretends that they do. Right. Now, you know, you get a lot of these like armchair experts who haven't actually done that job or been in that position. And so they are making decisions and offering advice based on what they have fabricated in their mind to be how the police operate. Yet they might not actually have any actual firsthand experience with it. So I thought, okay, it's probably, I mean, for one, I felt like I have to support the, the truckers. They stood up for me and my family when no one else did. I'm not going to turn my back on them. But it was also like, okay, I think it would be, if, if we want this to remain peaceful the entire time, it's important to have people who know how, know how things operate in order to try and like be that intermediate between, you know, the, the convoy and the cops, right? And so I hope that I was successful in contributing in that way. That, that was part of my thought process. Although my primary reason for saying yes was because I felt like, well, they stood up for me. I'll stand with them. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, jumped on board with what they were doing because of what they were doing. 
right? Like mm-hmm. what they stood for and everything else. Now, be, before, I, before I let you go, I think it's uh, probably wise to remind people that while we sit here talking, there are steep, still people being held in prison. Yep. Uh, Pat King being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are some of the other people that are being, being held right now? I know we talked about Tyson Billings, Steve Sharland. Are those the three guys that uh, are still being held? Those are the three that I know of. I've heard and, there, and is it I've on heard mystery? that others may have been arrested. Um, I but I don't know anyone else that's still in custody. But those those are the three names that I've seen publicized in the media, and like they've had repeated um, hearings and just keep being remanded over and over again. So like being held in custody. Yeah. Um, so far, what I've seen from the charges that have been published against them. Uh, I don't, again, I don't know the details of what everyone was involved in while they were in Ottawa, but based on the charges that I've seen that have been laid against them, it's all pretty standard. Like they're almost all facing the same things from what I've seen. Like you have the, they're being accused of mischief, counseling mischief, disobeying a court order, counseling, disobeying a court order, obstructing police, counseling, obstruction of police. And then just recently, um, definitely Tamara, Chris, and I think Pat as well, were also charged with uh, intimidation and counseling intimidation. And okay, on the mischief side of things, like the fact that we still have people held in custody for something like that is a complete departure from the norm. Like the fact that they were released on some of the like bail conditions that they were like Chris and then Tamara being held and then eventually released, like not allowed to use social media, not allowed to even talk about the freedom convoy, not allowed to um, converse with certain people, not allowed to, um, uh, even participate in protests related to COVID restrictions. It's like, I've never heard of anything like that before for mischief related offenses. Like that's, that's bizarre. And that's a massive departure for the norm. And the fact that there's people still in custody for that, like that to me, no, no, no question is like, that's a political, there are political prisoners. It's not based on the criminal code and based on what like standard practice would be. Um, when you look back at, uh, you know, I've seen people released when accused for very violent crime, right? And, you know, they, they'll be on a no contact order with the victim, et cetera, lots and some other bail conditions. Usually like my experience was like, they're usually when they commit those violent crimes, they're quite often under the influence of alcohol or drugs. So no contact with the victim, abstain from alcohol, report to, you know, report to uh, a PO or like a probation officer, something of that nature. Um, I, but like to completely censor people and suppress them from their, like their fundamental right to even protest. That's, I've never seen that before, especially when it was like, it was peaceful. There was no, there was no violence. There was no property damage. So like, it's a massive departure from what my experience has been in the past and people still being like, people still being denied their, you know, their liberty, their freedom 
because of these mischief-based offenses. It's like, well, if my if I understand the angle that the that the police and the and the courts have taken here, it's that the mischief and the court order and everything was and uh, the obstruction was all related to the the trucks being downtown and the trucks remaining downtown. Well, those trucks are gone. They were forcibly removed and they've dispersed and gone home. The people that were got their vehicles back. So what is the threat of the continuation of the offense? I can't understand it. Like, I don't feel like there's any continued concern that if, if Pat and Freedom George or Tyson Billings were released, I don't think there's a major concern that they would then go continue the offenses that they're accused of. Does that make sense? Yeah. What uh, you got me curious, the, the intimidation one, what, what does that mean? Okay. Okay. So that, that, that's a criminal code offense as well. And where I see that as complete garbage again, is it, who specifically did they intimidate? Like, I'm sure, I'm sure that well, the crown, can... ha- I'm sure the crown has like probably identified people who've complained about it. But to my knowledge, to my knowledge, the convoy didn't intimidate anyone and or counsel the intimidation of anyone. The message was always about open, welcome, support people's freedom of choice. Right. Freedom of choice, freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And I've heard I've heard like, from uh, tons of people, Dan, that they were intimidated by the convoy. By the government and why that was was because of what media was saying, right? They were okay. fearful to go down there. But I'm wondering so Chris Barber gets an intimidation charge for what? What like yeah, I don't for look intimidating at Chris, who specifically. Yeah, I don't look at Chris like when I think of intimidation, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. I think of like a mob boss intimidating, I don't know, a politician, a judge to make a ruling, something like that. And I go, oh, okay, yeah, like maybe that can hold. Like, I like, I don't know, what do he do? Kill his horse or something and throw it in his bed? You know, are we going full on godfather here? Like, is that what we're talking about? Because that's an interesting one to throw at a few different people of the convoy. Well, and, and how about this? If you look at the criminal code definition of intimidation, essentially the elements of the offense are, I force you to do something that you don't have to do, that you have a lawful right not to do. Or I force you to abstain from doing something that you have a lawful right to do under threat of violence towards you or a relative or threats of property damage or threat of punishment of some kind. So if you, uh, you, you got it pulled up there. So 423 sub one sub B, I want you yes. to look at sub B specifically because it's so pretty long winded. So, so it's uh, sub B says intimidates or attempts to intimidate the person or a relative of that person by threats that in Canada or elsewhere, violence or other injury will be done to, or will be done to, or punishment inflicted on him or her or a relative of his or hers, or that the property of any of them will be damaged. But there's also, there's a part in there about punishment, right? Like being yeah. subject to some kind of punishment? I guess so. Punishment inflicted on him or her or a relative yeah. of his so, or hers? 
so and, and and in the preamble before you get to those subsections it talks about like someone forcing you to do something that you yeah. have a lawful right not to do or forcing you to abstain from something that you have a lawful right to do right so like for it, the it can go either of, way yeah either for the i force you to do something or another I force person... you to avoid doing something yeah i just i'm i'm i guess that one i i don't know so i'll, okay. I'll ask you what what do you think these uh, vaccine mandates have been in order to keep your employment? Uh, they've been forced on you. They've been forced, right? E yes. Under threat of losing your job or losing yes. your pay, right? You know, um, provincial, intimi federal. Intimidation, intimidation so could be the worst. Are, are 100%. <laughs> I, I, in my mind, I mean, I'm just a cop. I'm not a legal expert. I'm not a lawyer. But in my mind, what has happened, what has been imposed on the Canadian public has been intimidation, right? Um, you know, well, that's, that's and, why and you, that's, you, you could go down that rabbit hole, but that's why like I come back to masking, whatever, right? But the vaccine mandate, 100% in my mind, has been intimidation, right? From the provincial level, the federal level, even private business, right? People who have imposed that on their employees under threat of losing your job or losing your pay. That's a punishment, right? No matter what they say, like, oh, it's non-disciplinary administratively without pay. Are you kidding me? You're talking about taking my paycheck away and I have to go find a new career now. You don't think that's, that's not disciplinary because I refute, oh, by the way, within our own legislation, I have to consent to medical procedures, right? In order for it to be lawful. So I have a lawful right to say no. It even says it in that uh, immunization report where like immunization cannot be made mandatory in Canada due to the Canadian constitution, period. The constitution being the supreme law of Canada, period. So our government is, in my mind, 100% guilty of intimidation. So well, that's who, why, that's who why, did the convoy specifically intimidate? That's, that's what I mean. That's right? what I mean. Whereas millions, millions of Canadians did not take a shot until they were mandated to do so to keep their job or to be able to get on an aircraft, which is another lawful right, mobility right, correct? Under the charter? Yes. You know, so millions of Canadians have been, you know, people call it coercion, but it's the same thing as intimidation in my mind, have been intimidated to do something they had a lawful right to say no to under threat of punishment from our federal and provincial governments. And, you know, and to some degree, like municipal governments on their employees, hospitals on their employees, police services on their employees, like millions of Canadians have been victims of the criminal code offense of intimidation. And no one's talking about that. No, they're but, just putting it. Yeah, they're just putting Chris it. Chris Barber and Tamara Leach are accused of intimidation, which like of who? Of who? Like if you, if you came down there firsthand, well, you would have seen that no if one was trying to behave in an intimidating manner. 100%. If people mm -hmm. went down, but the way the media portrayed it, I'm like, oh, I could see how they, they see it as intimidation. They, and they forcibly took the capital and they were holding it and they wouldn't leave. And they were a bunch of whatever, you, you know, extremists. And I could see how they could portray it as intimidation. I sit I here and I go. A news report is not evidence. That's right. That's what I mean. So when you talk about uh, what went on for the last two years, I'm like, oh yeah, that feels like intimidation, coercion. That's the word that's been used a lot. But well, then I'm like, they, oh yeah, that makes sense. There's evidence on video. 
from the prime minister. If you don't take this, there will be consequences. What are the consequences? Oh, well, that's specified later on. You will be put on administrative leave without pay. If you, if you don't comply, you're not allowed to get on an aircraft. You're not allowed to see your dying loved one in the hospital. You're not allowed to keep your job. Right? Like that is 100% in my mind, intimidation. And so I personally think millions of Canadians could make a criminal complaint against different levels of government, different employers for intimidation. However, I don't believe that, well, I don't know if any police services will take it seriously. Yeah. Because it's too widespread. It's like everywhere. This isn't one jurisdiction. This is everywhere. Well, but if enough, if millions of Canadians demanded that it be investigated, true, it might gain some traction, well, right? Because public policy seems to be made based on public opinion, not on evidence. Yeah. Well, I think that's what surprised all, like, was so shocking to so many different people, including myself, was I just assumed the law was the law. Yeah. Well, I did too. But it isn't. I just assumed, uh, I don't know, like... I, I just got to see firsthand. I mean, the trucker convoy was showed it all of us. If you put enough pressure on politicians, they will dance and mm -hmm. it, it goes both ways. So the trucker convoy goes, causes a stir. And what happens? Well, politicians, well, all right. Well, they never cease to amaze any of us anymore. They, mm -hmm. they take away all the restrictions like, mm -hmm. like that. Well, that all that was, was pressure on politics. Right, or just pressure from the population to change things. We want things different. Well, it happens. But for me and you and a whole bunch of people, like the travel restriction is just like mind bending. How that's still there. Well, but I, I, I got friends in in the 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 uh, the group of pilots. Free to fly. Thank you. Yeah. And like Air Canada was May first. If they didn't have their shots, they would be they'd be put and they just moved that to, to November. November. And yeah. I'm like, why would you move it to November? Why not well, just cold and take... flu season comes up again? I know, but right. But it, that uh, just, just wait. I, I'm just wait. Teresa Tam's already planting the seeds. And Doug Ford said the, a similar thing. Like they, I will not be one bit surprised if they try and bring back mask mandates and other mandates come next fall. I think they are going to give people the summer to have like a false sense of freedom. And then boom, here's your restrictions again in the fall with cold and flu season. That's my anticipation. I mean, I could be wrong. I hope I am, but they are already planting that seed. And one thing that I, we have noticed all along is like, they'll plant a seed and then they'll let it fester. And then, so it's not such a, a blind side surprise mm -hmm. when they actually bring the, the regulation or the restriction into effect. So people need to be awake, pay attention. They, I mean, okay, well, this, this could go on and on and on, but while everyone is distracted with other events, there's a whole bunch of other things going on right here in Canada, passing through provincial and federal legislature that no one's talking about. And it's all going to impact our future, right? And, <clears throat> but I think my main focus has, I think what our main focus needs to be collectively is we can affect change if enough of us demand it right and it doesn't even have to be through um you know you don't have to wait until 2025 
to have a say, yeah. right? Like lobby your politicians, stand up in unison, stand up for each other, the employer and the government as an employer needs their employees on mass more than we need them in their positions of leadership. Right. Well, like, I think w w one uh, of the things that trucker co convoy taught us mm -hmm. is together. We are one powerful thing. Yeah. Right. Like that, that was, that was evident. Politics and, is a popularity contest. And I tell you what, if things come back, people need to remember that. Like, listen, mm -hmm. together, we like together. We stand like divided. We fall. It's a pretty, mm -hmm. pretty, pretty simple little recipe here. And uh, they're going to try and put things in like, it's one of the things I'm hoping that I'm going to do better as I move forward is I really want to bring more people to the table. I really want to mm -hmm. bring many sides to the table. Cause you know, do I think I got it all right? No, I just know what we all lived through for the last year. Wasn't, was not fun. Mm. And that doesn't matter if you were vaccinated or unvaccinated. In my opinion, if you were a person in this country, it was a long year. Unvaccinated mm -hmm. was really not fun because yeah. literally you couldn't go anywhere. Oh, you I were mean, treated like a second class citizen. Hundred like percent. You, like you're, you did not have equality, like, even though you know people were operating under under the false belief that you were more dangerous than a vaccinated right. person. But there spreading was a, the disease. But there was a ton of people, like we said, that that in order to keep their job, to order to keep food on the table, mm -hmm. whatever it was, went and got whatever they didn't want to get. And there's other people who just got it and still are upset with what the government did, right? Mm -hmm. And is doing and continuing to do. And there's got to be a way, and I'm actively searching this out, to bring people, more people to the table. So when the time comes, it, like people are together and united and they just stand. They don't allow it anymore. It's just like, no, this is this is ridiculous, right? Is that another trucker convoy? I I don't know. I, I, I mean, is that what's uh, going to happen? I have something happen? on that. Yeah, sure. James Top. James Todd, the veteran, yeah, the the vet veteran marching across Canada. Yes. You know what? Like, it's a major contrast from the big visual of the trucks. Yes. But that guy, if we all get together in solidarity to support him, everyone who's concerned about the direction of Canada, you know, regardless of status, I don't even care about that. Like, I haven't even paid that much attention to what's currently going on with COVID numbers because I've been so focused on other things that are happening in Canada right now that is a further degeneration of our fundamental freedoms that no one's paying attention or not no one very few people are paying attention to because of the distractions of what's happening globally we could recreate the environment that the trucker convoy had if behind everyone James rallies top. behind James top right it's a very different visual but we could bring millions of people to Ottawa when he, if, if people are willing to get on board and stand up united against well, the, it, the further degradation of our freedom and get behind James top when he gets into Ottawa and demand that our, polit our, our politicians acknowledge our concerns and, and, and go to a evidence-based approach as opposed to, modeling right every time you hear about a new plan for COVID, it's all based on modeling 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 well we've got over two years of evidence to make decisions now so let's make evidence-based decisions not the decisions based on speculative modeling right um so i think there's an opportunity there
and you know what, and I, and there is other, there's other convoys and rallies being held all over different parts of the country. Like, I think, but I think, but, but I think once again, one of the things that was great about the trucker convoy is it galvanized everyone at the same time. Mm -hmm. You you can have all these splinter, um, and I'm not saying they're bad. Please don't let anyone hear this and go like, it's bad to have a protest. I'm not saying that, Mm -hmm. but what moved politicians was that everybody got behind one thing, the volume. And when it got cranked up, Mm-hmm. nobody could hide from that not a single yeah. person and yeah. then you saw the protests happen uh, Edmonton Calgary uh, Regina like for locally close to where I am and the pressure that was put on by one single event and its size changed mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. and what I do uh, like about uh, Mr. Top walking and is, is is it's already I'm already seeing it I've only been back you know this is the first day or well, no, like the third day sitting in the chair, uh, Dan, since coming back off of a hiatus. And the thing about him is he's, I probably get a message multiple times a day that I need to get him on. Right. So mm-hmm. I just, so for the listener, I just got his number and we'll, we'll see where it goes. And you know, it, it sounds like he's kind of in this neck of the woods, not Lloyd particular, but you get the point in the provinces. And I, yeah, I've been watching his little uh, journey since he started. And mm-hmm. to me, I agree with you on him. I think that is something people can get behind. And uh, I've heard a bit of his story and like, yeah, I think it'll be interesting, hopefully to get him on here one, but two, um, as he gets closer to see what excitement comes from that, because that is a slow, one of the things about the, the the trucker convoy that was interesting was that it was like a little bit of anticipation, right? Mm-hmm. They left. Oh, where are they at? Oh, they made it here. Oh, did they? And then you see some videos and you're like, oh, okay. Right. But it wasn't like, oh, they're in Ottawa and there's a protest. It was like extended period of time. Now, top is like that on steroids because mm-hmm. I don't know. Does it, when does he plan to be in Ottawa? I think he's planning. I think he's anticipating being here in June sometime. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, there is a certain day around that time of year, which would be epic for a lot of people to come to Ottawa to join in solidarity with him. Yes. Right. <laughs> I get where you're leaning. Just, I, I think that would be awesome, but Hey, I'm just going to get, I'm going to put my support behind him. There's other people that have been doing things locally here in Ottawa to kind of keep things alive. And they're, they're keeping things above board. They're doing it the right way. I'm going to support them. A uh, guy by the name of Jeremy from Alberta. His, um, uh, he, he had Freedom Fighters Alberta, and then he changed it to Freedom Fighters Canada after being involved with so many people down here. Um, there, there are, and, there, and there's different things going on in different parts of the country uh, where people are still trying to keep this freedom movement alive, right? I mean, I think a lot of us, myself included, had a little bit of like a, a convoy depression, you could say, once the convoy was dismantled and trying to sit in there and be like, okay, like, where do we go from here, right? Um, I think, and I, I, this is not my idea, but I'm in agreement with it. It's conversations I've had with people. It's like, you have all these different groups, right? All these different freedom groups. And I'll just even just use the police groups, for example. Sure. Like you have... Um, Mounties for Freedom, Police on Guard, uh, Police for Freedom, Provincial Police for Freedom, and then you even and then you like you want to extend that to Veterans for Freedom, which is a newer group. 
um, really rallying behind James Top. We're all putting our support behind this guy. And I think as a whole, like Action for Canada, Take Action Canada, like there's a ton of different groups. Everyone has their own method of and skill set that they can bring to the table to try and keep pushing for the restoration of our fundamental freedoms. And I think it would be really great if we could all come together with one unified message, right? Like I think if you look at the, the official narrative, they've been very effective at pounding the message into people's uh, subconscious, right? Safe and effective benefits outweigh the risk. You know, it's the only way through this. And they just keep repeating themselves over and over and over again. And so I think we need to tell our story and our message in a similar fashion where we just keep constantly a constant barrage of putting that message out there. And one message that I think everybody can get behind, regardless of vaccine status, regardless of uh, race or religion or ethnic background, it doesn't matter. It's like the fundamental freedom to choose based on uncensored truth and treating every individual with dignity and respect. Because I can tell you, and I'm sure you've experienced this, I, there has been an element of society, even people that were close to me in the past, even knowing who I am and what kind of person I am, that have totally treated me as if I was the plague because I refused to buy into the narrative. Yeah. Right? I... And, 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 and they believe that because the government, public health, and the media has told them that even though they know me as a human and they like, we, we were friends for years. And now because of this one choice that I made, which I felt was an evidence-based decision, now I'm no longer treated as an equal, right? Even now, even now with restrictions falling away, it's awkward, right? It's, it has ruined relationships. The propaganda has destroyed relationships. And so in order for us to get enough people on board with standing up for each other, for each other's rights and freedoms, if we don't agree on every in every single issue, we need to have a message that resonates with everyone, right? I don't care if you're vaccinated or if you're not. Everyone is deserving of dignity and respect, right? If we, and we should have, well, we do have a fundamental freedom of choice as protected by our charter and every other piece of legislation surrounding human rights. And it needs to be based on uncensored truth. If you don't have access to both sides of the information, you can't have an honest debate about the truth to get to the truth. It's propaganda. And so I, I don't think you can go wrong appealing to the masses. And that's what we, we need to appeal to the masses, right? That fundamental freedom to choose based on uncensored truth while treating every individual with dignity and respect. Even people who hate me should be in agreement that that's where we should be going as a society. You know what I mean? 
People are uncomfortable though to, to hear differing opinions. Well, that's the life, man. Right? People have different opinions. And I mean, just I know, but you we, surround we, you, we, you we can't always be in our own little echo chamber, right? Reinforcing our own bias, right? Like that's you're not gonna I you're have, not gonna you're not gonna get any arguments out of me. I, I listen, I think it's something that I'm gonna try <clears throat> that I really want to try and do better. Mm-hmm. on the podcast moving forward is to sure have Dan Bulford on, but it'd be, it'd be interesting to have somebody on who completely disagrees with you because I think mm-hmm. it'd be interesting. Some of the funnest conversations I had in Ottawa, there was the, there was a, there was so many Facebook videos of one guy with a mask on who was just losing it on the truckers. I bumped mm-hmm. into that guy. It was a, Oh yeah. The I, guy was, who was yelling in the street. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, I, uh, what ended up coming out of our conversation was that he hadn't slept in like four nights because of the horns and it was right mm-hmm. at the start. And I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't think the truckers want it to go on like that forever. You know, and we had this, like, I was willing to let them yell at me. Cause I mm-hmm. was, you know, I don't know. I was happy and, uh, it, nothing really bothered me. And the longer he talked, the calmer he got because I wasn't I wasn't engaging in a fist fight. I wasn't engaging in a verbal abuse of words. Mm-hmm. But I found uh, one of the interesting things sitting on this side is the amount of comments I get against my uh, my like they're not you're an idiot. It's like. No, it is you're an idiot. It isn't that you're you're wrong. It's that they take attacks a at your moral like mm-hmm. standards because mm-hmm. you're willing to sit and listen to, um, you know, different doctors and different people and, you know, and just hear out their side. And uh, but I, I think overall, one of the things that I need to do better, hopefully, is to engage both sides, because I think if you can start to have both sides come to the table a little bit. And maybe I'm wrong in this idea, but certainly you can tell me I'm, I, I can go fly a kite, but I think our side, this side that I sit and talk to you, we engage the, the population that wants to hear it easy done. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people that never want to listen to you, Dan, are never coming. The people that right now that never want to listen to Sean, talk to Dan are never coming. If I can start to find ways, or if we can start to find ways to bring other people in that certainly think I'm an idiot, certainly think you're an idiot just to hear what they have to say. Then they're going to pull their crew in because their crew is going to be like, Hmm, I, cause I've seen Joe Rogan do this. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people that I never thought would listen to Joe Rogan go, well, I'm going to listen to that one. Cause that's, that's my guy. Mm-hmm. And then you listen to him and what Joe does. And it's not that he's an idiot. It's just that when you get long form expanded conversations like this, certain mm-hmm. things make sense. Certain things really don't make sense. And if they can't defend themselves, then it gets exposed. Or maybe mm-hmm. they have a great idea that me and you don't even know. And that's good too. Like, I mean, all of it's good. The problem we got right now is the echo trip, is the fact that our government leaders and everything have the answer. And this is it. And if you don't do it, this is what happens. And me and you sit there and look at that and go, that is complete asinine. Like there's different mm-hmm. ways, you know, I don't know how many times I got to say it, like, there's multiple ways to get through, you know, we're through. And now coming in, do you think there's going to be a flu season this fall? I'm, I'm just curious. Do you think there's going to be flu? <laughs> I, I think there know. is. Oh, and, probably. Yep. 
And do, do what are we going to do? We're going to slap masks on everybody again? Are we going to go back to QR code? Are we going to go back to all that? Like, is that the plan? And if they're in government and that's the plan, like, I'm like, right now you have nothing but time to solve a giant amount of issues. And maybe the issues to me and you are small, but to them, they got to deal with it. It's like, well, so then deal with it, but don't put like one of the hardest things, and you mentioned it, one of the hardest things I've seen over the last couple of years is mental health. I, I've, mm-hmm. I'll put myself in that category. I'll put people I never thought would ever have mental health problems, have mental health problems. Why? Well, it's not that hard. You just ask either side. It doesn't matter what you did with your vaccination status. Either side, they, like the rules that were getting put in, the, the conversations, the fact that wouldn't leave you, the fact they just kept hammering, hammering, hammering. Like that sucked. That was mm-hmm. not fun. And the fact that friends, and you mentioned this, good friends and family have had, this has infected everybody. Like the family unit has been hurt by this. Friends, Mm -hmm. friendships have been destroyed by this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you ever get that back. And that's a government, like that's a, that is, our government has done such a poor job, such a poor job on navigating all of this. And I don't know how you ever, you ever get that back if you ever can. That comes from the populace saying no more. Mm-hmm. And so what you're talking about with all these different groups and James Top, yeah, I, I, I think you could get me on board with that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think we need to find ways to come together and not just the groups that have formed, but the population. We got to move on. We got to find, like, I, I'm tired of talking about COVID. I think you're probably tired of talking about COVID. The problem uh, is, is, that, is that the government is already planting seeds, like you say, they're already doing things that you're like, fuck, like, why are they doing that? They're going to try and mm-hmm. push again. Mm-hmm. I, I have no, I, I'll be very pleasantly surprised if they don't try and bring restrictions back in. Right. Uh, and, and it varies from province to province. Like the university of Toronto just dropped their vaccine mandate based on a human rights complaint that was made against the, tr- the university by faculty and they published a paper as to how it's un- the restrictions are, are unscientific and questionable. And I haven't read the paper in its entirety, but, and, but back in a, f- a few months back, the Ontario human rights commission came out publicly saying that choosing not to be vaccinated does not qualify you for a human rights complaint. But now they seem to have reversed on that by honoring a human rights complaint on behalf of U of T staff. It's like, well, had all of us known that you were going to do that, we all would have made human rights complaints and gone through this a diff- by a different process. But again, maybe that's also uh, a feather in the cap of the truck convoy, right? They, maybe they have changed a lot of people's minds. Whereas out in British Columbia, the commissioner for the human rights commission out there is like pressuring Bonnie Henry to bring mask mandates back, according to the news. Again, take everything from the news with a grain of salt. But I'm just like, there's no consistency there. Um, so one thing, one thing people could do if you're having a difficult conversation with someone um, that you disagree with, I don't know if anyone has actually taken any of this to heart when I've discussed it with them, but like, if you look at your own provincial pandemic response plan, And if you look at the federal plan, so I've looked at Ontario and I've looked at the federal plan, both were put in place anticipating a large scale influenza pandemic prior to COVID. 
the, the Ontario one was updated 2013, federal one, 2018, but they're very similar. They almost say the exact same thing. The different levels of government have different responsibilities, but what I can tell you from my interpretation of reading both documents is that masking healthy people was never part of the plan. The only time they talk about it in either plan is specific to uh, a healthcare worker treating an infected patient wearing a fit-tested N95 respirator. Surgical masks and cloth masks, not recommended. Lockdowns were never part of the plan unless you're looking at like last resort, something uh, like a school closure or something like that. Absolute last resort for something with a much higher infection fatality rate, like something like Spanish flu death rate. This is right in their plan. This was our own science that we did not follow. We did the exact opposite. Um, early treatment, 100% part of the plan. They talk about like uh, mass distribu distribution of antivirals from government stockpiles. Now with influenza, um, I've talked to uh, Dr. Ira Berenstein and he said, well, you know, that might, you know, Tamiflu and we don't really know how effective that is. But within the plan, it specifically says like acting within the precautionary principle, like you cannot wait for scientific certainty to start using safe drugs to develop early outpatient protocols, you know, to help mitigate impact yeah. on the healthcare system. So we did the exact opposite of those three things. We masked healthy people, we locked down and we, um, and we absolutely destroyed anyone who advocated any, early treatment, uh, early treatment, right? Yeah. Even though that was clearly part of our pandemic response plan, provincially and federally. They do, I'll, you know, to their credit, or not to their credit, full disclosure, they do talk about immunization, but on two, uh, two points I'd like to make on that. We're talking about flu shots that have been around for a long time which don't seem to have near the number of adverse reactions. I mean, as far as I know, right. I haven't done the big deep dive on influenza shots, but I think a lot more people are comfortable with that than the brand new COVID ones. And the second point on the immunization, it specifically says it has to match the circulating strain, which I think if you've been paying attention, even to public health officials, you would see that the current COVID shots have completely failed against new variants. And yet they keep advocating for people to take more and more of the same product that has continued to fail against recent variants. Why? Why did we do the complete opposite of what our plan was? And if, and if you look at Dr. Tam's bio, I think it's a, it's a bio specific, like uh, if you Google her, like Dr. Teresa Tam biography, I think you'll come up with, uh, I think it's like women, women in medicine. And it's like a, a little biography on her. And there's specific language in her bio that matches exactly what is said in the intro to the Canadian plan and the Ontario plan about like uh, best practices based on experience gained from like the initial SARS virus and H1N1. They all say that similar they all say those same things like the you know, provincial federal plan and her bio. So it's like, there's no way people in her position didn't know 
what the plan was. There's no way. So essentially, our plan was like a Great Barrington Declaration approach, which was published again by like professors from Harvard, yeah. Stanford, and Oxford yeah. back uh, in October had, of 2020. It, yeah. And as soon as it was published, it was over 800,000 signatures and everything else, right? Oh, and then, and then Dr. Fauci, Dr. Collins, and uh, I can't remember the other gentleman, maybe the Eco Health Alliance guy. I can't remember for certain, but definitely. Collins and Fauci from NIH and NIAID, like there's emails that have been exposed that they were, were like actively communicating that we, that they had to crush basically the reputation of the authors of the Great Barrington yeah. Declaration to discredit them. That's been, I tell you what, uh, I want to wrap up because I'm like, I feel like we could go on and on and on. We we've could, been going, yeah. We've been, it's been a while. <laughs> well, it, I tell you what, we'll just have you back on. That That's that's a, that's a simple thing to do, Dan. Uh, mm-hmm. And we could certainly get into some of the things that are concerning you um, uh, with what's going on with some of the bills being passed, that type of thing. Um, I, I tell you what, in almost two months of no podcasting, if I thought the world was going to slow down and there'd be nothing to talk about, Uh, well, I would be sadly disappointed. And I mean, like the world continues to speed up. There continues to be things upon things upon things to talk about. And, um, I don't think we'll have any shortage here in the months to come. And, uh, I, I always enjoy our chats. I know this is only the second one, uh, but getting to meet you in person, everything else like that, we'll, we'll have you back on. Cause I think you come with an interesting perspective, um, and one hell of a beard, if I may say so. Now, <laughs> that, now that I'm not in the oil field, I'm slowly, uh, to the listener, they can't see it, but it's slowly coming in. Cause, uh, I think one of the, on, on a funny note at the end here, I think one of the cool things about not being in the oil field, is not have to be clean shaven. And so we're going to grow a beard. We're going to try and rival Mr. Bullford on the other side there. So well, I, I'm a, it's a ginger beard though. So you do have a ginger beard. That's right. You got, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me again. Um, I would just say like, if anyone is concerned about what might be happening, like based on things that I mentioned, like I think the, I'm all about free markets and people's having freedom to choose, but we cannot allow governments to take away our fundamental freedoms, right? Familiarize yourself with the charter. And if you yeah. see a bill that threatens any of our fundamental freedoms, that's a warning signal about a day, like a slippery slope that we're continuously sliding down in Canada and not just Canada, but in the Western world. And if we're not careful, we're going to start. Yeah. Like it's only a matter of time until other people's freedoms start to be infringed, not just my freedom to choose bodily autonomy, right. Or not just our freedom to choose bodily autonomy, right. They're, they're, they're actively pumping through legislation that's going to dictate what content you can and cannot watch. I think more and more people are starting to become in tune with what's going on and starting to pay closer attention to it Mm -hmm. for so long in my life. Yeah. Like it really didn't matter. At least it, you know, people might probably people older than me will laugh at me for saying that because they'll be like, you're an idiot. You should have been paying attention for longer than that. But um, I feel like more and more people are starting to pay attention whether or not that means that things will be stopped or, you know, uh, yeah stopped in its tracks or because they're paying attention, anything's going to change. I don't know that answer, but I do think more people are starting to take notice. I think there's more and more people starting to talk, have shows similar to what I do or their variation, which, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it can only help because I mean, the fact that 
everybody can see firsthand what the CBC says. And then what guys like myself and others experience there. And they're just, there, there's no like putting the two together. Like they're so far apart. It's not even remotely close, I think is eye opening to a lot of people. And in that mm-hmm. case, that's probably started to show people like, well, oh, maybe I should be going to an alternative source and, and trying to find different means than just turning on the CBC and seeing what they say. Cause I mean, once again, I just, that one was a really hard thing to see firsthand. Like I'd never seen anything like that before. It's uh, there's going to be some different guys I try and bring on. Cause I've, you know, they worked in the industry a long time and I I'm curious if they have their moment where they're like, Oh, this is messed up because they probably mm-hmm. do. I don't know if mm-hmm. you could be in that industry and not see it firsthand and be like, this is strange. And I know it hasn't been going on just for this year. It had, it's, you know, you can read things from long ago that, that show it's been going on, but needless to say, it's been fun having you back on the show, Dan. I do appreciate it. And uh, all the best to you and your family. And uh, I look forward to uh, getting to sit with you again here in the future. Right on. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate you you having me. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, guys. I hope uh, you enjoyed. Uh, If you haven't, make sure to like and subscribe. Um, Leave some feedback. Share to your friends, family. Um, It's always cool hearing how people found the podcast, and that's a lot of you guys and and girls. sharing what I do. I appreciate that. Finally, uh, in the show notes, the the number to get a hold of me, if you want to tell me uh, I'm a moron, or if you want to, you know, give some feedback, you got a guest suggestion, that type of thing. Always interested to hear from you guys. So either shoot me a text or uh, find me on social media. Um, the other thing is, if you want to support the podcast uh, financially, there is a Patreon account that's in the show notes, or you can tell me flag height. That's totally cool as well. So regardless, we'll catch up to you guys Friday and uh, go be awesome.